Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the show where we examine issues and stories in the wider woke world that have been impacted by critical social justice. On today's show, I speak with Kerry Warsnop, farmer, mother, Nuffield Farm scholar, and former Gisborne District Councillor. We'll be discussing how ideology has impacted farming and how government has bulldozed legislation through that will have a detrimental effect to all New Zealanders. My second guest is Helen Houghton, co-leader of the New Conservative Party. Helen is a former school teacher who has left the profession to help inform parents of ideological agendas now rife in our schools and how much occurs without parental consent. We will round things off with the woke word of the week. This is where I take a look at the vocabulary, the manipulation of language by those in critical social justice. It's Mother's Day this weekend. A time to cherish those who have loved, cared and nurtured us. And for those so fortunate to be mothers ourselves, hope that we too get a little cherishing of our own. Motherhood is now often maligned, with many foregoing its institution for reasons of career, personal autonomy or even climate. For others, it is so desperately sought after, agonising over in a roller coaster of emotion from hope, to betrayal, as biology just simply won't bestow her bounty. I cannot believe how incredibly blessed I am to be a mother. The sense of total disbelief of holding my son after his birth, the small treasure who finally arrived after five heartbreaking miscarriages and a genetic diagnosis which sent us on a journey of reproductive roulette. It was a miracle indeed. I've met some incredible mothers who have helped mentor and guide me on my journey of motherhood, all of whom should be celebrated. They were there when the sleepless nights seemed like they would never end, provided solace when the tantrums beat steadily day after day, and always had a coffee and a sage word of wisdom when you needed to hear them the most. Mothers, not pregnant people or birthing persons, 
mothers. I would never have believed I'm having to write this to defend the sanctity of motherhood, but here I am. I was appalled when I saw health advice put out by Tefata Aura this week. Pregnant people 16 to 29 now eligible for the additional COVID-19 booster. Followed up with, Kiorokoto using words pregnant people is inclusive of women, girls, gender diverse and trans men, all of whom may be able to be pregnant. We will continue to use language that includes all. Oh really Tefata Aura? So how many trans men have been popping a sprog in our fair nation? Well, for the record, I was never a pregnant person. I was an expectant mother. M-O-T-H-E-R. Mother. So this Mother's Day, as you remember, celebrate or cherish a mother in your life, make sure you erase from your lexicon from this day forward the following. Pregnant people, birthing person, and chest feeding. We are mothers. Let's own it, reclaim it, and send the message, don't mess with Mama Bear. This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. You're with Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and my first guest this morning is a sheep and beef farmer from the, and a former Gisborne District Councillor and the 2023 Nuffield Farming Scholar, or a 2023 Nuffield Farming Scholar, Kerry Worsnop. Good morning. Good morning. Nice How to be here. I'm really well, thank you. For our listeners, explain a little bit more about who you are and where you are, and then we're going to dive off into a direction that I think everyone is going to find really interesting. Okay, uh, so beginning with, I suppose, I, I certainly define myself as a farmer. I've been farming since I left school. Um, came over to the beautiful East Coast uh, as a, a nanny originally, ended up shepherding. Absolutely uh, loved the way of life, loved the people. Uh, met my husband and um, we went out uh, for ourselves into our own business a few years ago now and um, kind of been grafting away at it ever since. Um, somewhere along the line, I, I, um, I started studying, and out of that came a bunch of um, different avenues and opportunities. Environmental consulting was something I did for a bit. Um, Federated Farmers Environmental Portfolio, which led me into council. So, yeah, in a, in a nutshell, um, got my head, my finger in a few different pies. And um, I think, yeah, Something I'm really passionate about is the rural community and uh, the aspects that I've been fortunate enough to be a, a beneficiary of. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty keen to um, talk to anyone I, I can, I suppose, and um, support of that. Mm. Now, I spoke to Graham Williams about six weeks ago, and for anyone that hasn't caught up with that interview, it, you can go and search it up on realitycheck.radio, go to replays, go to my show, and look, um, you can find the replay there with Graham Williams. Graham and I spoke about the forestation of key prime farmland on the East Coast, and then we discussed the difference between carbon farming and uh, farming for timber. I did a little bit of research before catching up with you, and I have to admit, I think the new dirty four-letter word is IKEA. 
<laughs> yeah, well, um, put it this way, I'm not buying too many of their products if I can. Hui Rua and Martinui, which is what Graham and I spoke about, those are two massive East Coast farms. Wisp Hill, Wallingford, Stone Ridge, Tapapa, four farms near Gore. I think Wisp Hill is one here locally in Hawke's Bay where I am that's just been bought. How can this be happening, Kerry? What is the motivation for all of this? Why are all these prime farms being planted it's it's really simple actually. Um, money. <laughs> the the motivator for these companies is they want to sell their products without having the guilt of being an emitter. Right? They want to they want to have a, a net zero or a in the in IKEA's case climate positive tag stuck to their products so that consumers don't feel as though. Um, you know, they necessarily need to reduce their consumption and they're, you know, they're quite happy to buy these products. So it's very much about image. It's about um, portraying a sense that we're doing the right thing. And, of course, consumers don't typically look very far beneath the surface with regards to, you know, what is actually happening. Um, And we are, unfortunately, other than, uh, I think, Kazakhstan, the only country in the world that allows 100% carbon offsets using a forestation. So we are an outlier globally. It's only natural that these massive companies search the globe and find trees like ours and go, oh, look at this. We're going to take advantage of it. And along the way, they can make a shit ton of money. Graham highlighted, and I said to Graham, why are they then in places like Huiru and Matanui? Why are they planting pines? Why are they not planting long-term sustainable kauri forests and things like that or putting things back into natives I mean surely that gives them Mm. the green credibility but as you said it's follow the money they're planting Mm -hmm. the The cheapest stock cheapest fastest and and I think the thing that probably um makes this the most grating for for many of us who who made a noise about that sale and tried to stop it was that if you genuinely wanted wood products, as IKEA claims in its submission to the Overseas Investment Office, then you would buy a standing forest, wouldn't you? Of which New Zealand has any number currently for sale. Mm. This company is not buying standing forests. It's buying farmland to put into forests because that's what's eligible for the carbon credits and that's what's eligible for the, um, the NZ units that it can then register to claim um, the Climate Change Commission's draft advice on the second um, emissions reductions plan basically talks about the cost to an emitter being between $25 and $50 per unit to offset using trees. Anything over that is income for them. Just remember the carbon price was up close to $90 not that long ago. These guys were making money. So when you say these guys, you mean the government were making money? No, no. Investors. These, investors. The, yep, yep. The government simply uh, um, the administration function of it. Although, don't get me wrong, government makes makes money out of the ETS too, but um, largely to redistribute into whatever it deems to be the um, worthy causes that it wants to put that money towards. What is the motivation for those currently in government to do this? To, to be honest, and it's probably where I, I differ from a, a few people, some some people genuinely believe that there was malicious intent to kind of get rid of farming. Um, I've had enough to do with politicians to know that they, they typically 
there's probably an element of that in some factions, but broadly speaking, over over you know the majority of people who who end up in parliament, that's that's not really their deliberate intent. What this is more a feature of is the fact that when we pulled together the Net Zero Carbon Act, and when the emissions trading scheme was formed, there was huge pressure from the public to do something, right? because everyone wants climate change to be solved and everybody's saying, look, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough. And then you've got a three-year election cycle where politicians are going, we need to send a message. We need to provide a signal that we're doing the right thing. So we ran massive pieces of work through knowing that there are really big potential issues in them. I mean, if you were to have the time and potentially um, the patience to trawl through all of the submissions to uh, both the ETS and the Net Zero Carbon Bill, you would find a screed of them saying exactly what would happen if they went through as they were. Exactly what those submissions said would happen is what has happened. And that it's turned into a massive, um, basically, opportunity to game the carbon market, make a hell of a lot of money, make very rich people even richer at the expense of normal New Zealanders because this is a domestic system, right? The money that pays these guys, it comes from you and me. You pay a fuel tax, you pay all sorts of other things via the things that you buy. And we don't bring in money with this scheme. We simply haul it out of everyday New Zealanders and we pay it to these guys to plant some trees where they then go and get to make themselves look good in foreign countries who, you know, trusting that their consumers are never going to know how they're doing it. You, you know, you don't have to see too much more of the footage of what occurred in, cycl- in the Cyclone Gabriel to realise what, you know, planting more pine trees on erosion-prone hills could look like for us. Um, but, you know, they're trusting that, by and large, their consumers don't see it and their consumers won't care. And we've got a, a political system that is paralysed because they, they've set up a scheme that is now a minefield any which way those politicians move. They've... It- they've of it's, it's, it's an absolute mess. It is an absolute mess, and it's optics, isn't it? This yep. is all about optics, how things appear. Uh, mm. It's like, I mean, what you've just described, in my head, I was thinking about the whole electric car push mm. and how the there's no sort of thought into what mining has to go on to source the minerals to create the batteries, to create the cars. And it's not just the cars, it's any electronic um, environment and what goes on in countries throughout Asia and Central Africa in order for that to happen and the raping of the environment for that. And here is IKEA coming into this country, literally cherry picking some of the best Mm. land yeah, yeah. In order to make Scandinavians and Americans um, feel really good when they buy their piece of flat pack furniture, greenwashing is at its absolute zenith, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, typically, like, I read, you know, obviously a lot on this stuff. And what we allow in this country is much more typical of what occurs to third world countries where the, the country desperately needs money of these big companies. So they're prepared to trade off their resources and their communities to do it, to get it, right? And usually that's because they have a lot of pressure to supply things like, you know, basic necessities that these countries already can't afford. We're not a third world country, right? Why are we behaving like one? Why are we letting massive big companies with 
more than enough money to actually implement real change if they wanted to, to instead come and essentially uh, mine <laughs> our communities, you know, mine our productive landscapes for carbon, which, um, you know, th there are probably no people on the coast in the vicinity of these farms who support this purchase. Mm. Why were their voices not heard? I've got that two theories on this. Theory one is that the reason they're doing it is because they want to look good globally. And when I say they, I'm talking about the government and whoever's in the government at the time, I'm sure, they want to be seated at the big boys table and be looking good amongst mm. all those major nations, trading nations, is one. And two, in the select committee process, you were saying with the select committee process, I've gotten to a point now that why do we bother having them? Does this government pay any attention whatsoever to anything in submission and selectivity? Well, my experience would suggest no. Um, so I took a petition to Parliament in, was it 2019, I think, um, when this was all first kicking off, right? Well, the writing was on the wall for all of us, right? I think you probably, the only bit that you'll remember about this is Shane Jones standing up and calling people rednecks, right? But so there was there were a handful of us up and down the country who are reading these cabinet papers, reading this material that's coming out of government going, holy crap, guess, look at this. This is going to create an absolute snowball of land use change and nobody knows about it. They're not talking about it. They keep calling it scaremongering. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And so we pulled together this petition of, uh, I can't remember how many, 10,000, 11,000 signatures. A lot, right, for a rural-based petition. Um, delivered to the steps of parliament, <laughs> the only way I got a response to that petition was by putting in an Official Information Act request. And what I got in the Official Information Act request was just screeds and screeds of information that uh, well, it wasn't even information, really. It was just a rebuttal by the Ministry uh, for Primary Industries to say, well, yes, all these things might be true, but we need to do something. You know, in essence, that's what it said. And, and I think what we've got is this desire to do something and the absence of really knowing what you're doing creates an enormous mess, a mess that will persist long beyond my own time and into the time of my children and their children. Mm. And, you know, if I think, God, if we can do anything right now, you can, you can be as terrified of climate change as you like. If you are so... Uh, paralysed by the fact that you've wrecked your community and you've wrecked your economy, it won't necessarily matter how hot the climate is. Your children are not going to be well-placed to either adapt or to mitigate anything. You know, we, we actually need to make deliberate choices with good information, not um, a whole bunch of well-meaning choices based on feelings. You know, mm. that's very, very different. And that is where the ideology intersects with real life. In critical social justice, they divide it, uh, everybody into different groups. And within those different groups, they assign a power ratio. So you're either an oppressor or you're oppressed. And mm -hmm. James Lindsay, he's actually a mathematician by training, very fervent on this, that it's a form of Marxism. And it's like, if you look at the ideology in terms of a 
from a scientific perspective and you have a genus and then you have a species. So like he describes it, cats, all cats come from the same feline uh, genus. So you have all the different types of cats from tigers to domestic moggies. And then you have the different species of cat that fall out from under that. And the ideology is very, very much the same. So under the whole umbrella of uh, Marxist theory, you then have critical social justice, you have critical race theory, you have queer theory, you have climate ideology also falls out of this because everything is not based on reality. It's based on perceived reality. It's mm. based on how you, as you said, how you feel, not what the actual facts are. And when you're trying to deal in facts as you are at a select committee level and in governance, the rebuttal is, is yes, we know that this is the case, but. Yeah, and or the, the issue that I really took with that process was all well and good if your plans show that you want to convert something somewhere between 1.2 and 4 million hectares, right? All well and good, that's fine. Let's let's um, let's say okay, that's what the government wants to do. For God's sake, you are you have a duty of care to tell the people that that's what you're actually planning to do. You know, instead we had this and for a very long time, this papering over what the actual intentions of the ETS were, that's being really laid bare now by the Climate Change Commission, saying actually your ETS does pretty much nothing in terms of reducing emissions. All it does is drive afforestation. You guys need to go back and change it very substantially. Now, that advice is not new advice. They provided that advice at their last um, report into what the government should be up to. The, the problem... I think we find ourselves with uh, when you when you're attempting to um, send signals and send messages and appear to be doing the right thing and the in the absence of really really um, robust conversations with the public is that you lead the public down a merry little road. They don't necessarily understand that all the things that you've promised are actually not deliverable or they're deliverable at huge cost. So when those huge costs start to become apparent, the public get upset, right? Well, that's if they're made aware of it, though. Well, what what happens is there's only so long that you can perpetuate something that's um, more of an image than than reality, right? You, you, I think probably some of the symptoms of this were apparent in the policy bonfire, right? There were a whole bunch of things that um, the I've called the Art Dune government because it there has been a delineation between the Hipkins government and the Ardoon government because he's burnt a whole bunch of things that she spent a whole lot of time building. Um, but the rea reality is Ardoon didn't really have anywhere left to move. If, mm. she, if she persisted with a whole bunch of things that were on the table, one hell of a mess was going to um, follow because the way that they were structured was actually, in, in many cases, well-meaning, but actually probably going to result in worse outcomes. Um, and, and to go backwards, I mean, you know, as a politician, that, that's the worst thing you can possibly do, or certainly, I think, in her mind. Um, and so we, we actually needed a change of the guard in order to burn a whole bunch of stuff. But really, the reason that stuff was burnt was not because necessarily I think that the Labour Party changed its ideology. It's because the public was pushing back really, really hard. Mm on some things that were starting to become evident, even if they weren't part of the narrative. So give right. us an example of that. Um, Would the walking back on three waters be part of that? 
Yep, yep, definitely. I, to be honest, there's there's loads of examples. Um, I mean, I'll stick to farming because obviously you're talking to me in a, mm. a farm. Yes. Probably um, the the afforestation uh, area is one where the government probably was reasonably comfortable to just keep letting forestry offsets do all our emissions reductions work, right? Now, what I think um, I think land use change is is a concept. Most people, if you read the information, you say, "Oh, well, look, forestry is that you know it still produces income." Da 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 da. Um, in actual fact, carbon farming doesn't produce income for. New- We're exporting money, right? But the the government had got itself into a position where it had promised a whole bunch of people that they could make these enormous sums of money. You had big iwi organisations and other corporates having gone into this area in a big way. Now when they go to change it, it costs a lot of people a lot of money and a lot of people lose, um, you know, they, they, they lose confidence in the system. That, that um, U-turn is something that they're going to be very, very reluctant to do. They're probably going to use an election to mask it. Uh, and, and probably they're hoping that the aftermath of the election, that it's actually just not their problem. And you quite often see that with election cycles, mm. where, where it's used as an excuse to run the, I don't know, the air out of something that was already a problem. Three Waters is probably another example where it's going to get mishmashed in the election cycle and reinvented as something else out the other side of it. Um, when you consider the things that people really took issue with, especially councils, our council, we we didn't take issue with the definition of, you know, water being really important. We didn't take issue with the idea that it needed massive investment. We took issue in the main with the fact that the government's numbers were so far wrong that it wasn't possible for us to have confidence that signing up to this thing was going to result, result in our communities affording their water. You know, it, it's not physically possible for $2 billion to be spent in the Gisborne region using debt and also for that population to be able to afford that debt. Mm. It's simply not possible. And Gisborne is probably still, I just remember when I was a homeowner in Gisborne, it had one of the highest levels of rates in the country. Mm. It was. We, I'm assuming that's not changed. No, we, we don't have enough people. We've got about 50-odd thousand mm. people and, and 800,000 hectares of land, right? We're, we're huge. We've got one of the biggest roading networks in the country. Um, spreading all of those costs over people who are widely dispersed, especially with water, is massively expensive. Uh, It's very unlikely that, I mean, the entire strategy for Three Waters is largely just we're going to amalgamate these things, we're going to use the fact that you can rate to generate revenue as essentially the ballast that provides confidence to the lenders to lend. We're going to lend as much as we possibly can. And then we're going to extract the money to service those debts from this population. We can't argue, right? That's a recipe for water poverty. It's a recipe for people who can't currently meet their electricity bills to also not be able to meet their water bills. And councils balked at that and went, hang on, hang on. How do our communities say we can't afford this? At what point, you know, does it become apparent that they can't afford it? Or will the horse have bolted and it won't matter that they can't afford it? These are all the questions that councils had. Um, the government, I, I, I don't know. So where's the local government minister on all of this? Isn't that, well, our, isn't that our friend Nanaya? No, she's... Cha- uh, no, she, she was. 
was, yeah. No, he is now Kieran McNulty. Right. Uh, and I think he's got a... Um, he's got I, a really... I understand from someone from the Wire Rapper the other day that his nickname is Noddy. Um, Apparently well, he likes to spend lots of time in meetings just nodding his head. Oh, well, if he likes meetings, he's, he's probably something else to get. But, um, but essentially I I don't think it, it I mean, it, it probably doesn't matter too much, is my experience of politics anyway, who the minister is. Not. The consultants and the work that's gone on behind the background. I mean, Kieran McInulty, I can guarantee you right now, he is not an expert in water. Nanaya Mahuta was not an expert in water, right? Well, they water are, acquisition potentially, but not necessarily in water, no. So they get provided a whole swag of advice from consultants from all over the place, from, you know, their ministerial advisors, etc. They themselves are probably not that well placed to make decisions about the quality or the calibre of that advice. Um, from mm. what I've seen of the advice that, Nanaya Mahuta was given, there were some pretty big issues with some of it. She wouldn't have known that if she had no one to tell her that. Uh, she really, really was very sceptical of, of anyone outside of, you know, the, the government system highlighting those issues. We were largely said to have been politically motivated because we wanted to be re-elected at the next local government elections. That was the reason why we were all saying no. I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, probably one of the most overused term um, words in the last few years has been the word expert. In my mind, the way that experts work is changing. Um, I know when I when I studied, right, you would get heavily penalised if you provided a 200-page report for something that could have been 20 pages, okay? You, you actually encouraged, get to the point, tell us what the information that we need, and then move on. That's that's not what our experts do these days. They provide piles and piles of pointless data. Half of it is waffle, um, you know. And the the point in doing that is mostly just like there is intangible value placed on this waffle. I'm not sure why. I think it's a it's a cultural thing, right? It's it's mm. definitely risen very, very dramatically in the last few years. Um, actually, even just reading the Climate Change Commission's report, oh, my God, I know what they're trying to say, right? I can tell you the main points that they want to make. They did not need 240 pages to do it, or however many pages it is. Half of it is recycling the same garbage that 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 no one necessarily gets any information from, but it to make sure that nobody's offended and that nobody feels left out and that nobody, you know, can say, oh, but you forgot about this perspective. Um, you know, we, we've, we've, we've got a lot lost, I think, questions. Speaking of reports, as I've got my hot little hand that came out uh, last week was the Disinformation Project's report. Uh, the Disinformation Project is a particular hobby horse of ours here at RCR, and they put out a report uh, this one was only, I mean, for them, it was actually quite light, to be fair. It was only 42 pages long. Yeah, uh, that's... <laughs> that's not too bad. Yeah, no, I only lost about an hour or so of my time on this one. But I'm going to read you something because I think you will actually, this is in the, introdu in the introduction, I believe. To be honest, this actually sums up exactly what you're talking about, but also where we're at. 
The Disinformation Project now studies a diverse and dynamic disinformation ecosystem preoccupied with multiple and shifting ideological concerns, including, but not limited to, misogyny and reactionary ideas about the role of women, anti-LGBTQI+, the rejection of science, including climate change and fresh water, anti-government, anti-establishment, anti-Māori, anti-co-governance and anti-immigration rhetoric. This is the significant cause and effect here in Aotearoa, New Zealand and is located within a system of global trends, themes, narratives, actors, including state or state-adjacent actors that drives destabilisation of social cohesion. Lovely. Lovely. So in other words, if you disagree with the government... Mm, yeah, I mean, at least they're calling it ideology, right? That's something because I guess <laughs> the the reality is we we're given. Uh, and to be honest, I don't I don't think we can necessarily point the finger at the government uh, for this. I'll be honest. People elect governments, right? Mm. If we as society value uh, narratives and you know talking about the way things sound and the way things feel more than we value what the actual material outcomes are for people, mm. then we're going to get this. Yeah, so identity get politics versus yeah policy-based politics. You mentioned before in regards to the information that people actually get. I mean, you are somebody that's diving into the information. One of the things, so this is the actual report, for example, from the Disinformation Project. I also downloaded the media pack and the media pack was essentially, these are the key points that we want you to talk about. No why on Mm. those points, no examples on those points, no anything. It literally was a full page media propaganda sheet. And it's the same, I'm sure, in farming and climate. Yeah, it, well, it, it's the same pretty much in any kind of communications, full stop. You see actually companies do it now. You see, you know, boards very tightly manage the way that the communications are, are released. In the, it, I think it's, it's interesting, um, the preoccupation with perceptions. It's, oh, oh, my gosh, I just remembered. Okay, so with this Nuffield thing, I get to look at all these amazing different people doing incredible things all over the world and try and learn stuff from them. And there's this one woman whose podcast I listened to, and she was she was uh, looking into um, the the functioning of governance in China. And what she was specifically looking at is th- there are there's relatively little power provided to local government in China. It's, it's mostly held, obviously, by the Chinese Communist Party. And at the same time, there are huge pressures from the population for these local governments to do things, often things they can't do, often things they're not resourced to do. And so what happens and what emerges in response to this is what she calls performative governance, right? It's not governance that's performing, it's governance that's putting on a performance. And what you see is mirrored in the way that, actually, to be honest, most Western countries are are responding to people's demands for change, is instead of materially shifting the foundations of things in order to produce a different outcome, which is obviously very hard to do in complex systems, very hard to do when it costs money, very hard to do when you're asking people to do things, they put on a performance, they use words, they use... um, releases it's where perceptions matter perceptions only really matter if what you're materially doing isn't necessarily lining up with what you think should be happening and you know you don't need a performance if you're absolutely rock solid and sound in what you're doing 
right? You can, I, I guess it comes back to the old, um, <laughs> the old adage, right? Actions speak louder than words. Mm. If you've got no actions, you need words. Yeah, well, right. and the common uh, the Russians used to say, um, you, "You pretend to play us, and we'll pretend to work." <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah. that's that's kind of where we're at, and in, in, in particular with um, with entities, governments included, who who want to be perceived as achieving something that potentially even they know they're not achieving. Mm. So does this all of this fall under Heiwaka Anoa or is that something completely different? <laughs> or am I opening Pandora's box now? That's like another hour all by itself. So give us the cliff notes on that because, there, see, this is one of the things that I get really frustrated for for most everyday Kiwis, right? Mm. There are all these things that are thrown out and about, a lot of them with Māori names, and, and there's no meaning mm. behind them. So, for example, Three Waters was something that wasn't coined by the government. It got coined mm. by the people because that's how they understood it. And mm. I feel that Hei Wakanoa is another one of those things. It's something that's a name that's put out there. Most mm. Kiwis may have actually heard it on the radio or potentially read it briefly in a news article, but they don't actually know what it is. For those who don't know, Hei Waka Ikenoa means all in, this, or all in the waka together, which has... <laughs> since become the most ironic name in the history of naming anything um, because very clearly having all of the agricultural industry in one waka um, with the delivery of the proposals, the emissions pricing proposals has very much meant that uh, in particular the sheep and beef industry is barely hanging off the side of the waka if it's actually connected to it at all um, because the implications, in particular for the sheep and beef industry, are really, really massive. And um, there's a conflict, there's a number of conflicts that still exist within that plan, not not least of which being the complexity of it and the cost of it. Um, so this is a plan for the rural sector to yep. manage and control their emissions, is that? Well, control is probably a kind way of putting it. No, it's okay. slack emissions, right? So our net zero carbon bill has an interesting um, target. It's got a target for uh, carbon dioxide to be net zero in net for, uh, in 2050, right? Net means that you can use offsets to get there. It means that in theory, you could do absolutely nothing as long as you plant enough trees. Methane, on the other hand, has a gross emissions reduction target, meaning it doesn't matter how many trees we have, we have to have materially reduced methane by 10% by 2030 and by and the, this is a this is an interesting one for you by 24 to 47% by 2050 now i know it's weird it, the reason it's weird is because it's cut and pasted from um, the ipcc it's, it's literally not even our own target it's a case of the people responsible for making a target didn't know what to do, so they cut and paste from something international, plonked it into our domestic legislation and said, we'll worry about the rest of it later. So the agricultural sector is, is facing these, what are frankly very, very brutal targets. So just again for non-farmers, what would constitute a methane generation on a sheep and beef farm, for argument's sake? Yeah. So when animals eat 
Um, grass, obviously grass is growing using CO2 and sunlight photosynthesis, right? The, um, the plant takes up CO2, it uses it to make energy, which provides its cellular growth, etc. The animals then eat that cell, you know, the, the, the many cells that this make This is grass. the farting thing. They, yeah, so they digest that grass. Yeah. While digesting that grass, there are little bacteria that live in their animal's stomach called, myth, I think it's methanogens, something like that. Those little bacteria produce methane. And that is um, primarily burped, actually, not farted. But, <laughs> you know, all same thing. Mm, um, that methane ends up in the atmosphere. It has a, a greenhouse gas uh, potential that is higher than CO2. It's, it does a better job of trapping heat. And then, so it's in the atmosphere for about 10 to 12 years. It's then broken down by a molecular process uh, to return back to CO2, which then goes back into the grass. It's a cycle, essentially. How has this been then measured? How Mm. on earth do you measure how much (laughs) a cow farts and belches and how much methane it spits out? Actually, New Zealand's probably got more research on this stuff than just about anybody else. We've got the Greenhouse Gas Research um, Institute Association. Oh my God, I what it's called. Um, we also have um, Ag Research and a number of other entities that have been researching the hell out of this for, for a couple of decades now. Um, the, the relationship between what comes out of an animal is very, very closely related to what goes into it. Right, and we know a lot about what goes into animals because we're an agricultural nation. This is our bread and butter. We've been doing this for 150 years. We know almost everything about growing animals, and so it didn't take a hell of a lot to work out that you know they eat basically a kilogram of dry matter and they produce roughly a kilogram of CH4. So they use it as a rule of thumb. And the greenhouse gas inventory, which is how we report internationally, they're not too bothered about whether or not your measurements on farm, which we don't actually do, no one does, um, are accurate. They don't care about that. What they care about is the integrity of the system. So if the errors are consistent, that's fine. So So all they're worried about is how it looks, not what it does. Yeah, pretty much. Well, that's how we report. We're we're worried about consistency (laughs) at the way we report. We're worried about um, trends. I think that the biggest issue for farmers is that because this is a biological process and one kilogram in, in terms of feed, equals one kilogram of methane out, um, and it's a cycle, the the conversation that's missing is that if you reduce that cycle currently with the tools that we have, essentially you're asking farming to stop farming in the pastoral context with animals. There aren't other options that make anywhere near the scale of emissions reductions that are in our legislation currently. So you know how I talked earlier about the the, the scale of planting that was very much in the frame in the government, but certainly wasn't part of the wider narrative publicly. It's very much the same with farming. Most of New Zealand, especially urban New Zealand, have no idea how much the reduction in New Zealand's farming sector would need to be in order to meet the targets as they stand now. Essentially, in spite of the fact that the primary sector is something like 80% of what the, uh, the country you know, sells to the world, we're talking about making massive, massive dent in that. Uh, the, the hope, and again, this is one of those things where we'll just put the legislation in place and then we're going to hope. <laughs> the hope is that someone will come up with something 
that breaks the connection between what grass goes in and the methane that comes out, you know, whether it's a vaccine or some other thing. And the hope is that that thing will arrive and farmers will be able to afford it and we will tax them so much that they have to buy it and they have to use it. This is all beginning to sound very familiar, Kerry. (laughs) Isn't it? Well, the problem we've got with this picture is that the thing that you might be taxed into having to use doesn't exist yet, mm-hmm. right? If it did exist, yeah. the cost that you would need to apply to me as a farmer in order for it to be cost-effective for me to deploy this technology would, at the moment, end my business mm. or it would enable me to become, you know, 30% this is where, from, from my perspective, from coming from a cultural perspective, I'm mm. looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, okay, if we do have this methane cycle and there is these em- emissions out there, what mm. is the actual global impact of those emissions that we have from this country and New Zealand farmers? And last time I read it was something like 0.3 or 0.4 of a percent of all global emissions is coming from New Zealand. But, so we are looking at destroying... For all of New Zealand, right? For agriculture it's obviously uh, less than that because of the emissions that uh, this is actually to be honest you're getting into quite a technical area here there's there's a lot said in the in the rural space around the way that we measure methane it's not a it's not a conversation that you hear a lot in um, outside of agriculture because a it's very technical um, b there's not a lot of appetite for it but because methane emissions are a cycle, and it's mm. large, currently a stable cycle, it doesn't actually add to warming. So while all of the CO2 emissions that are pumped out every year are cumulative, meaning that you lay down another layer on top of last year's layer or on top of the year before that's layer, with methane, provided that you are holding the same amount of livestock broadly, you are simply replacing emissions that broke down last year. Mm. Uh, and that 12-year cycle basically continues. In order to reduce the emissions that the government's talking about, you actually need to reduce the cycle, which in warming terms, because you were only holding the line by holding your livestock numbers constant, reducing then creates a decrease in the amount of greenhouse gas molecules that are currently in the atmosphere. That decrease in in real terms, if we were China or something much, much bigger than New Zealand, would have a cooling impact Globally, obviously we're not China, so it won't have much of an effect. But 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 the material result of reducing greenhouse gases is a cooling impact. Now, the reason that we plan to have a cooling impact by reducing our methane emissions below our stabilised cycle is so that we can fill that gap with CO two emissions. <laughs> now, not only are we using trees to offset. Um, CO2 emissions that we don't really plan on cutting because the the voting public won't really like it much, Uh, we're going to reduce agriculture to allow CO2 emissions to continue um, pretty much, you know, at at elevated rates also. The, The removal of animals has essentially the same effect as the planting of trees in that there are fewer GHG emissions in the atmosphere. What I mean, this is not a conversation that you'll hear from the government, even though they'll, they'll they'll talk to you about it privately. It's not something that they want the public talking about, because then it calls into question the fairness of the targets for agriculture. So, well, you know, we broadly speaking, the public believe that the half 
of the country's emissions that are agriculture, they think that that is adding to temperature, right? When you say to them, actually, it's just holding the temperature where it is already. Um, and if you reduce, then actually you're going below, you know, where the, where the temperature level is now. Um, then, you know, that's a very different conversation with the New Zealand public. Sorry, and what I understand too is that internationally they've reduced that overall emissions target everywhere else except here. Yeah, like the, the targets as they relate to methane internationally, like the IPCC's recommendations, I think it's 6% globally they want methane emissions from agriculture to decrease by. The vast bulk of what they want to be reduced by is, is the stuff that's leaking from leaky gas lines, right? But because we have such a big agricultural sector in this country, we're not like any other Western country, right? Our peers with a similar emissions profile are developing countries. Very few Western countries have as much of the of their profile made up of agriculture. And the primary reason for that is most other countries have a way bigger population. Mm. We have a tiny population. And, <laughs> and lots of animals, yeah. Yeah, so actually you could totally, uh, uh, most other countries, if, you, if you'd looked at um, Britain, for example, um, before they had an enormous population, it probably would have had a pretty similar profile to ours. Mm. So in terms of moving forward, so 14 October is the election, mm. but from this this perspective and a farming perspective, will a change of government actually make any difference? I don't think that it will, to be honest. And the reason I don't think it will is because it doesn't matter what party is, is getting, you know, trying to get themselves elected. They all understand that most of the population don't necessarily understand. Like, this is pretty complex stuff, right? I've, I've kind of covered it at high level with you. There's a mm. Broad figures and round numbers to make it easy. Um, there's more nuance than that, and there's a hell of a lot more technicalities than that. Having that conversation with the public and saying, "Well, actually, we might just trim that. Um, we might trim that target for agriculture, but what it means is that you're going to have to get out of your car." No one's going to do that. Everyone lives in Auckland. Um, you know, mm. the reality is, if you want to be elected, you are much, much better off to continue to lean on a reasonably big chunk of, of the country's emissions that come from a tiny proportion of our population. Like there's, there's I don't know how many farmers, 60,000 or something, not very many, right? They could do without our votes, quite frankly. The missing part in this equation is if you, if you follow, I guess, the way that our economy is knitted together, urban and rural are not divided. We are basically the economic base of, of the pyramid, so to speak. Anything that happens out in the hinterland flows through even to our biggest cities. And it, it flows through, you know, pretty quickly, to be honest. Hmm. Uh, well, just look at the price of a dozen eggs after... <laughs> the legislation changed there. And, I mean, I have to admit, I went to the supermarket and was aghast. It, there are just yeah. no eggs on the shelf. Yeah, and I mean, that, that's the reality of when, you, of when you make a decision that's based on, on politics rather than on pragmatism, to be honest, there's a massive opportunity and that, the, that the land-based sector provides with regards to, um, you know, all environmental issues, quite frankly. But we're not really addressing these issues as though there is opportunity there. We mm. really only see it as, as a problem, as a cost, as a, you know, as something to um, kind of 
run roughshod over the people who actually are on the land currently. The people that are on the land are the answers to most of the big problems that we have, you know, in the land-based sector. We've we've done it before and we can do it again. We can provide solutions, mm. but you're going to get solutions to anything when the people in that sector broadly just feel as though, you know, a big chunk of, of certainly uh, our governors and, and too many people don't want us to be here. And I think also too provincially as well, you're on the coast, I'm in Hawke's Bay, and we have gone through these weather events, um, I mean two significant weather events, you had both Cyclone Hale and Cyclone Gabrielle uh, affecting things in Gisborne, particularly on the coast with slash and devastation, the Esk Valley here in Pakafai and Awatoto and Bukitapu and Risington and Partoka, I could keep going. These are places that are struggling mm. to get back on their feet. They are the fruit bowl and the heart of the rural community here. And I think what a lot of townies don't realise, and we're, we're certainly noticing it here in the Bay, I can tell you that right now, when you put that pressure on that farming community, the income is not flowing and those farms aren't profitable and they start retracting in terms of spending. That then has an impact, that flows into town yeah, it has an impact into the spending and things that go on into town. Yes, I know a third of people live in, in Auckland. The reality of it is, is the generation for a lot of that wealth outside of Auckland is in these smaller provincial areas. They are really going to start seeing the squeeze. I don't think, I said to Gra um, Graham, I, I don't think I've seen farming in this much of a crisis since the subsidies came off in the early 80s. It is pretty yeah. scary. That, that would be... I would say that's pretty accurate. I think the conversations that are being had around farming tables at the moment, you know, they probably have more gravity to them than, than what we've seen in decades. And that's because there's this, there's this incredible convergence of pressures. So, I mean, if, it's well, well canvassed, right, the, the regulatory pressures and, and all that kind of stuff. But what people don't necessarily see is the fact that you've also got interest rate pressures on I mean, every farmer, every farmer I know anyway, has mortgage. Um, you've got enormous pressure coming on um, the cost side of your business. Uh, you look at the inflation that's running just broadly in the economy. Uh, inflation and in agricultural products is running well ahead of that. So it means that, you know, you've, you've got your business is, is actually not in the kind of shape that it was in two or three years ago where you could kind of go, yeah, 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 we're feeling this regulatory pressure. We're feeling kind of the, the noise but okay, my balance sheet's okay. You know, I can mm. kind of I can focus on my work, and I can kind of shed some of that some of that stuff that's hiding in the back of my brain. Much much harder to do that when suddenly there's not much much daylight between what it's costing you to do business and what you're making out of your business. Um, add to that the fact that, quite frankly, along the east coast, people's people's actual homes and, and businesses are they're a mess. Mm. You know. So the physical work that is required, you know, as so you're going out there not to do the stuff that you actually love, which is kind of growing stuff, you're actually just going out there trying to fix stuff. And and for some people, the, the scale of what is there to be fixed will be another kind of compounding factor. And so if you if you think about how these things kind of all line up, the biggest, the biggest influence on all of that is how you perceive yourself you know we're human everyone sort of you know you like to feel as though you're doing something that's worthwhile when when the mood is that you're kind of dispensable 
And if you go under because you can't meet your emissions tax, like, oh, well, so be it. That's that's just natural progression. It's actually not. That That's, you know, your government has made deliberate decisions to weed out whole swag of you. And, and the way that Hiwaka Kino is framed at the moment, the ones they're trying to weed out are the farms that are on extensive country, the big, big sprawly ones that don't have a lot of stock on them. They're considered uh, inefficient. And ironically, those are also the ones that we use to market to the world as being natural and <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. It is, it is those guys who are going to struggle to pay these taxes. They don't, you know, they're going to kind of get up one morning and face their, their first emissions bill and go, do you know what? I don't feel like you guys want me. I'm, I'm going to bow out. And at the moment, there are really, really willing buyers for those farms. And they're, they're not farmers. They're foresters just looking at that list of farms that I read out before they've cashed up haven't they cashed up and moved on yeah and what what is the mental health like I mean you get out amongst a lot of farming communities you speak to people I mean when you were in council you were talking to farmers what is the general mood amongst farmers out there right now I think to be honest it depends on how and sort of in touch you are with a lot of what's happening beyond the farm gate. As I said before, for those who really just focus on behind the farm gate, up until fairly recently, they were probably doing okay because they could kind of just ignore it till it happens sort of thing. We call, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, there's these farmers with their heads buried in the sand. That's how some of these guys cope. <laughs> but the the problem is now a lot of these issues are starting to reach in and you can't you can't avoid them. What that means for, especially to be honest, at the moment, the young farmers, if I think about the people who are the most vulnerable right now, it's our young farmers. It's the guys that, that might have tried to buy in, they've taken on a lease or they've taken on a, um, you know, some form of ownership, uh, maybe it's share farming in the dairy industry. In the last few years, they took out a loan that was probably costing them half of what it's costing them now. Right? They've really, really stuck their necks out to kind of get a stake in the industry. They will currently be feeling as though they're getting slammed on all fronts and they'll be probably struggling to see where the light is at the end of that tunnel. Right Now, the, the irony of all this is right now our balance of trade deficit is the widest that it's ever been. I think I read somewhere that we're currently worse than Greece. And if you remember rightly, Greece was the cause of the Eurozone crisis a few years ago. So we're in a pretty ugly position in terms of the gap between what we sell the world and what we're still buying from the world. And the answer to that is certainly not for this young blood that we've got at the moment to kind of just give up and, and go back to finding a day job. You know, people with skin in the game are the people who stretch themselves. They're the guys that take out an overdraft. They're the guys that keep their staff working and the contractors going, even when they're making no money, right? Those are the people that keep economies running. We need them to pull through this. Mm. If they don't through it, and they won't want to if we don't feel as, you know, if they don't feel as though there's some value in what they do, then um, frankly our... our yeah, our country's going to be in an interesting position in a few years from now because while we talk a, a lot about pivoting, <laughs> we're going to, you know, going to become a country that does something else other than agriculture. Um, the, the actual data suggests that we are more reliant on agriculture now than we were in the 80s. It's now a bigger proportion 
of, of what we do. Our biggest manufacturing sector is food and beverage production, you know. Even when you step outside of farming, you're still in a farming supply chain, right? We haven't built these other replacement industries that are just going to suddenly take us off in a different direction. We haven't invested a fraction of the money in anything else that we've invested in the knowledge that we have in the primary sector in this country. I I don't think probably most people realise that it, it literally took 100 years of investment to get the performance that we currently have now in our primary industries. Um, it'll take another, God, I don't know if it's 100 years, but certainly decades mm. to reinvent something to surpass or, you know, supersede that. Given that we're investing almost nothing in virtually anything at the moment, mm. we near that magnitude. I, I think, you know, if, if you if you want to reject agriculture, you you need to have an idea about what you're going to do instead. So for those who have listened to this today and they've gone, wow, I've had no idea that any of this is going on, where are some places where they can find good basic resources to actually dig a little deeper into some of the issues that are affecting farmers and or potentially reaching out to organisations that are making some noise in the sector to try and get some change happening at a governance level? Oh, that's quite a hard one. Um, the primary sector tends to have, you know, you tend to kind of recycle your own issues throughout your own uh, base of people. So we don't tend to do a lot of outreach, so to speak. Um, a lot of, I actually, I've thought about this before, providing the likes of the publications that a lot of our information is disseminated through it would probably <laughs> probably be quite hard work mm. for somebody who wasn't, you know, uh, familiar with these fields. I think um, media releases from in, in articles that are put out from Federated Farmers usually do a pretty good job of, of um, kind providing of... Providing an overview. Providing an overview, but to be, to be honest, there's, there's not a lot that will give you, without reading a whole bunch of stuff that will take you eons, um, it's quite hard to get this kind of information. You'll find that there are topical things that kind of um, arrive in the Herald or arrive in the, you know, the mainstream media. But by and large, there's not somewhere where you can get a comprehensive overview of all of the things that are converging on agriculture right now. That resource doesn't actually exist. Politically too, it's also until they take and hitch the political capital off the environmental ETS type wagon, Mm. it's going to be more of the same, isn't it? It doesn't matter who you approach, they're going to continue, it's going to be same shit, different day. There's an opportunity, and this is one thing, because I know um, farming gets very, it gets slammed a lot for being like, oh, you just don't want anything. You don't want to do this, you don't want to do that. You're just, you know, in denial. Um, I think the thing that I would say in response to people who feel that that's the message coming out of farming is is that in actual fact, we're, we're really adaptable. We have to be, you know. We are the most risky business on the face of the earth we literally rely on clouds and sun and things like that that change every day we are not averse to change but we need a solid place to put our feet if you're going to make a step you've got to know that step's not going to sink and far far too much of the stuff that's in place at the moment is a muddy swamp laying in front of us that people are saying oh here go run through that you know the the fundamentals of what we're being asked to move to need 
you know, they really need environmentally, socially, economically, it doesn't matter which field you're talking about. It needs to be based in something that is pragmatic and that we can do and that out the other side of it, we're better off, the environment's better off, the society's better off. We haven't just sent a signal, you know, articulated some kind of narrative, but underneath it all the outcome's still worse. You know, that, that's what we push back against. We don't believe in bullshit. And I think you'll find that pretty much anywhere you go in the rural community, you know, we believe in material change, not just words. On that note, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Kerry. So many of these issues have been behind the farm gate, but it's now time to get these issues out into the wider public because a problem shared is a problem halved, isn't it? And I think we need a greater understanding to actually help protect. Um, as Graham said to me many, many times, they're killing the golden goose, Marie, they're killing the golden goose, and we need to protect that. As this progresses between now and the election, I'm sure we will probably get you back and we can talk about some of these issues because I think these things are going to continue cropping up uh, closer to that election time. So thank you so, so much. That's fine. Well, you're welcome. Anytime. Cheers. You have a, have a good day. This is Counterculture with Marie on Reality Check Radio. More to come. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality yeah. Check Radio. It's quite alarming to hear what's happening in our rural communities, and I thank Kerry for her time. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio, or you can now use our new and improved text system. Text your comment to 2057, and that's it. Just leave your comment. That's 2057. Easy peasy. You're with Marie on Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought alternative thought and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Welcome to Reality Check Radio. You are with Counterculture. I am Marie, and it is time to talk to my next guest, Helen Houghton. Good morning, Helen. How are you? Good morning, Marie. It's fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being with us. Now, Helen is the Deputy Leader of the New Conservative Party. And Helen, your journey to this point is fascinating. So tell us a little bit more how you've gone from your background as in teaching to politics. 
Yeah, my entry into politics is not the traditional one, um, any, far from normal, but then I'm not normal either. Now, 15 years of teaching, I was in primary and intermediate school. <clears throat> uh, after 15 years, I had a bit of a desire to work in the community, so I stepped out of full-time teaching. Uh, and just was job sharing a classroom. So I was only in teaching two to three days a week and I was founding a charitable trust helping mainly young mums in the community. So throughout that time, uh, probably about three or four years later, I stumbled across some information from the Ministry of Education. So I was still part-time teaching. And look, the thing is, Marie, it was a really... Um, bizarre way of finding out this information. It wasn't through the teaching stuff. It wasn't through our staff meetings or professional development in the school system. It was actually by my Facebook feed. So I found it unusual because I don't normally, I wouldn't normally see anything from Ministry of Education on my feed. So obviously I looked at it and I thought, what, what, what is this? And it had around inclusion and diversity. So I looked into it, um, also thought it was a little bit of a, uh, yeah, a little bit strange because it's almost like you're saying, well, what has inclusive not been happening in the schools, you know, for the past um, few decades? I mean, teaching staff are inclusive. They uh, welcome and, you know, work with all people from cultures, different ethnicities. There's, there's no issues there. So I looked into it and I was actually alarmed with the information I found. So basically it led me to the TKI website, which is a teaching um, teaching website where you go and get lots of resources and use in your class just willy-nilly. Um, you know, some great, great stuff on there. But this was all around the Rainbow community. And the more I looked, the more horrified I was. What I did was I had to go seek out a MP. So I knew nothing about politics, but I knew there was, I had to do something about this information that we were teaching children around gender and it was completely confusing for children. So, And, and put, what sort of timing, how, how long ago was that? Just that was four years ago. Right. Okay, yeah. so four years ago. Now I am... Like you said, I'm co-leading the party now. So when I first put a petition out opposing the gender ideology in the school system, I went up to Parliament, spoke at a select committee with 10 other MPs, and the MP, Kieran McNulty, at the end of my delivery, said to me he didn't feel, he didn't believe that there was an issue in New Zealand and that I had used some uh, data from overseas, which I thought was actually ridiculous because it, as if, Parliament don't use, you know, data from overseas. I mean, we use data from everywhere, right? Um, so, so basically, nothing happened apart from the fact that we had over forty thousand people who had signed that petition. It was one of the highest online petitions through Parliament at that time. Um, since then, I've had many people who have said if they knew about the petition, they would have also signed it. So there's a lot of parents and teachers who were really concerned around the gender ideology being, um, they were being forced to teach. But so that was four years ago. Then I, uh, a political party, New Conservative, approached me because they saw the work I was doing in that space, asked me to be a candidate for them. So I ran in the 2020 election for Christchurch East. And yeah, here I am co-leading the party. So crazy things happen in four so years. Talk, talk us through some of then the information that they were asking you to teach four years ago. So what were some of the, give us some examples of some of the things in the curriculum that, as you said, you picked up through your Facebook feed, not through 
information through the school. So what are some of those things? Okay, now, four years ago, it wasn't so obvious, right? Like I said, this was just on a Facebook um, announcement. There was nothing solid in any curriculum statement. So we have our national curriculum. Now, this is not in the national curriculum. What there is is a guidelines document. So it's it's the Relationships and Sexuality Guidelines. What happened when I looked into this stuff most of the things I saw were from the website, not from the booklet, because the document hadn't been hadn't been given. And what I mean by that is when I first put the petition out, a, a principal phoned me and asked me if we're supposed to be teaching the gender diversity stuff. And I see, asked him if he had seen the relationships and sexuality guidelines, and he said that the ministry had not even sent it to his school. So a majority of schools would not have even seen this there would have been a very few schools who had this document and were basically trialling it out there without knowledge of other people being involved in this. Um, so, so it would yeah. have been like a pilot program that would have gone to uh, a yes. select number of schools, right? Yes. And since, you know, recently I've heard about a few people who were involved in that and are now horrified because, it, yeah, it was delivered to them like this kind, you know, inclusive document and now we have uh yeah we've seen the danger so all i noted i just knew when i looked at the content on the website that this was not correct so i go back now to that trans 101 video recording that they had for a resource for teachers to use um and i viewed that it's about six minutes long and what it is is a selection a group of adolescents who are on various stages of this trans journey um you know they've got piercings and all of that it just to me it looks like you know personality you know you're identifying we all do that when we're young it's teenagers you know you might dye your hair put a few piercings in um i certainly did you know but then but this now we're teaching children that this is a norm and that people can be born transgender and if you feel different or a bit quirky or anything that you're on the spectrum which is absolute nonsense it's not factual stuff but what alarmed me was that this was on the website for teachers to use in a classroom you know without any kind of parental knowledge or um, consent of any of this content Um, so yeah it was that that concerned me the most and then the language around um talking about pronouns and things. So it's, it's actually developed even more now in the last four years, especially now that the guidelines are are in the schools. Um, this has been delivered through new teacher training as well. So teachers who are going into training now uh, basically are being re-educated from the rainbow community about how to teach the sexuality stuff. It, you know, back in, it was only, gosh, Six years ago, five, six years ago, when I taught a puberty class, it was still the basics. It was still the basic biology. You know, girls get the periods. Um, the, the male teacher would take the boys, do their bit. So this has happened really fast and to such an extreme level of what we are what we are teaching now around sexual identity, sexual orientation and behaviours. It's... Um, Yeah, really outstanding. So I see, look, there's two significant critical factors that are impacting our education curriculum at present, and I blame them for the lower standards of achievement, but 
even the disinterest in children attending schools and the well-being of our children. Now, it's not the only factors, but it's the most pervasive, and that is the radical, politicised gender ideology that is under that guise of inclusivity and diversity. I see it simply as sexual identity politics that is verging close to grooming children. Now, the other one is CRT, which is a dis- deconstruction of history and a reconstruction to address historical abuses. So just just for the listeners, CRT is critical race theory, correct? Yeah, so it's aka racial propaganda. Mm. Yeah, racial Marxism, depending on which way you want to look at it. That's it. And why would we want to look at everything through race or through how we identify? It's actually creating victimhood mentality. You are either, if you're not oppressed, you are the oppressor is basically where we're we're at. I'm going to read something to you that someone sent me, and they're currently doing a university course. This course that they're doing is not a humanities degree, it's a STEM degree. Mm. So, yep. This is a compulsory course that they have to do. It's called Science and Sustainability. And this is a slide. They are now doing a section on intersectionality and equity and diversion in a STEM based degree. This is compulsory, this course, that they must complete the course and they must pass the course in order to do it. And this is what the slide says. Many people experience oppression in overlapping ways, not as separate distinct entities. It is often impossible to separate these out as the experiences of oppression. These are not equal oppressions and different terms to of the degree to which they are experienced, how they experience in the context in which they are experienced. Wow. And whoever wow. controls the language controls the narrative. And I the, I was stunned at that. I mean, the person doing this group is an adult and they are pretty open-minded to what is going on. Mm. But if an 18-year-old is at the first year at university doing this, mind you, in what you're saying, they've already been groomed for this language by the time they get there, aren't they? Well, well, this is the, the critical race theory is only just coming into the school with the revamp of the history. However, look, I... One thing I didn't say is I'm halfway through my law degree as well. So, yeah, I've got a few hats. And the first year in our law degree, um, we had a similar situation where, yeah, Māori, the Māori paper is with embedded in there as a compulsory for you yes, to actually complete. Yes, that's part complete. of this as well, Okay. Apparently. And what we came across, and you're right, that you know, the auditorium was for mainly 18-year-olds. You know, there's a few of us oldies. Um, but what happened with the Māori uh, professor who came into take this part of the course um, is, you know, appalling. She stood there and pretty much said to the audience, you know, I know you're going to feel uncomfortable. (laughs) You're going to feel like, you know, she's actually putting it onto them that you're going to feel uncomfortable with what has happened in the past. So it's like a blame, you know, a blame looking out there at that audience that, you know, you're grandparents etc you know it's it's if you're white it's a sign in guilt yeah yeah exactly a sign in guilt before you've even even started a conversation so it's setting that as the benchmark before even any dialogue or discussion has started so let's let's because i want to keep have a really good chat about and dive into the context of what's going on in the schools Mm. so my kids are now at high school so i mean it's not that long ago that i was exited the primary and um, intermediate pathway. Mm. And I have to admit, none of this I didn't. And I was pretty active 
with what was going on with the kids uh, teaching at school. Mm-hmm. Um, because I have one that needs needed a little bit extra help. So I was pretty, pretty all over what was going on. Outside of what you said, the norms in terms of puberty, there was not being taught, there was none of these. I didn't detect anything that raised mama bear alarm bells. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying now and in, in the last three or four years particularly, these got so these have gone from guidelines which I think are now starting to head towards entrenchment into curriculum, you think, or certainly the guidelines are being adopted more readily by a number of schools? Okay, when I took the petition the first time, I told you what happened, but after that I actually viewed a select committee not long after with Nikki Kay, who was the education minister at the time, and there were two or three, I can't remember, two or three, Ministry of Education ladies there, and they, they had mentioned the campaign that I was on, but they also talked about the fact that most schools they were aware weren't adopting this new education guidelines, you know, in sexuality. So what they their plan was to take it out of the hands of teaching staff and bring in facilitators. So you have outsourced the curriculum to people like Inside Out. You've got even um, a place called Oh, what is it, Nest Consulting, you've got family planning. So they're all, you know, they <clears throat> come into the school, the school um, takes it out of the hands of the teaching staff so that it's adopted throughout the school, you know, right right through. And there's no no um, confusion about the fact that some teachers are just doing their own thing or choosing not to uh, take on some of this. However, even recently, someone sent me a message to say that their school had informed them that puberty was being taught. It was a well-set-out, one-paged uh, letter stating that they're very clear that they will not be teaching the gender ideology stuff. So there's a, many schools now, it took a few years, many schools now who have seen the um, harm in this and are pushing back and are not doing it. So it hasn't been mandated as such, but the Look, the people behind it are pushing it. So you've got Rainbow uh, Inside Out coming into our schools. They have got a room at Parliament. Now, I'm not just talking about like a parent room. I'm talking about a full-on big room like the Māori have a room in the Parliament in the Beehive where, you know, the, the Rainbow people are. So so they have like uh, the lobbying has infiltrated so deep in Parliament. And I have heard this, even in the Labour caucus, they're having a lot of issues because they have given them so much power and control that there's a lot of stuff in-house, which is concerning. But this, we've seen this right across other institutions as well. Uh, The concerning thing is, look, teaching children about health and relationships is so important, as is teaching the basics of biology. However, what we have now is more focused instruction around the type of sexual acts than simple biology, including a lolly scramble of 100 genders, which you can choose from. Changing, you know, you can change them depending on how you feel from one day to a next. Not only is that absurd, it's dangerous. Mm. Well, especially because, so Inside Out, which is a, uh, it's government, predominantly government funded organisation. government funded. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so they're being subcontracted into schools. Correct. To discuss this gender theory, so essentially mm-hmm. queer theory, yes. to what primary and intermediate age children 
Absolutely. And in the guidelines now, because I've just uh, updated it, this is starting at year one. So they've got in the document for children to know the difference between sex and gender. I mean, you know, this is, yeah, it's right throughout. Now, I looked into, when I first started to investigate this and found out that the government had enabled um, this inside out, you know, into schools. The I spent a couple of years digging into the institutions that are pushing it, and I found a teacher resource, and I highlight this statement. It's for teachers to help them deliver the lessons. I quote, be aware of religious parents or caregivers who are distressed about this topic. It is worth noting to them that you are merely offering students a range of opinion, not an absolute truth. This is in their document for teaching staff who, because obviously when we first um, exposed this a few years back, there were many parents coming to us asking what to do. And so, you know, we sent them off, told them to go to the board, ask the teacher, ask your teacher if they're teaching it. And so clearly the inside out, you know, pre-prepared it, knowing that many parents won't have a bar of this and will be concerned. So they've, you know, instructed teachers how to deal with the most of the parents who would be appalled and not want this to be taught. Well, that's um, certainly a strategy that they've de- that's been deployed amongst other um, places as well, not just education. What I'm trying to wrap my head around and see if you can, being a teacher with so many years' experience, is how that this queer theory is being entertained to be even taught in schools in the first place. Surely that this is something that should be in a societal context, not in an educational context. And that isn't the primary role of our educators to actually teach kids the core competencies that they need in order to get on with life. So that's what I'm trying to wrap my head around. When did that line get crossed when they believed that these sort of ideological teachings needed to enter in to the schools? When? So it is all around politics. It's political. You have got somehow the um, radical trans activists have, uh, you know, infiltrated into Parliament. Like I said, they've allowed so much, they've given them so much power and control, this particular lobby group into the beehive where they have got involved in in every aspect of um, policy and it happens everything starts from policy I remember maybe three or four years ago when Chris Hipkins was the Minister of Education and he was looking for people to be on the council of the teaching council now one of the names that was applying for this position he had actually put a complaint. He was putting a complaint to the teaching council against me. (laughs) I had received a letter from him with a handful of signatures from other LGBT people or supporters wanting to take me to the teaching council. Do you know what for though? You know, you expect to go to the teaching council if you have, you know, done some kind of um, misdemeanor or, or something that's pretty shocking. Now, they would take, wanted to take me to the teaching council for using my citizen's right to uh, challenge 
something. And so they, they try and silence you. And this is how they have got so far they silence people who have got a different opinion you cannot you cannot question anything around lgbt you cannot um you know there's no debating otherwise they just throw out this language where they call you anti this and anti that but look even within the lgbt and you've you've probably seen this as well there's you know um I think we've mentioned it before, talked about the L not actually wanting to be a part of the this whole community anymore because the trans in it have become so powerful that they are overriding any rights in there as well. You, you, we saw that at Posey Parker, you know, they're shutting down the woman. It's no different than this, this particular person who tried to be on a teaching council that was applying under Chris Hipkins who was trying to silence me as an educator from having a voice, they did the same thing with Posey Parker and trying to silence the woman from having a voice. So this is right across. You know, you ask how this has happened. It's um, it's purely the power that they have allowed to go be embedded in all policy areas and in all institutions. It's happening everywhere. I'm here with Helen Houghton, co-leader of the New Conservative Party, and we're discussing gender in our New Zealand schools. So coming up this Friday is Pink Shirt Day, which has been around since uh, 2007. And I remember my kids getting involved in this at primary school. Now, like many of these things with the ideology and what I've certainly discovered over the years since I've been uh, studying this is that on surface appearance, it appears to be quite innocuous and quite harmless. And I referred to it the other day, actually, as when you look at the pamphlet, the pamphlet looks quite enticing, but it's not until you actually dive into the information that you realise that there's something a little bit more sinister there. As a parent, had always thought an anti-bullying campaign was not a bad idea. I was bullied pretty badly when I was a kid, all the way through to the, to the end of high school. So bullying for me is a real hot button topic because I have been a victim of it. I know exactly what it looks like. This year's event, I jumped on and had a look at the imagery around this year's event. Funnily enough, it came up again in my Facebook feed. So that's where I first saw it. And I nearly scrolled past it because I saw the pink, but then I looked back because all the imagery for Pink Shirt Day had moved from traditional bullying, which is poor antisocial behaviour amongst peers, to lots of imagery, which is both Māori, Pacifica, rainbow community. For me, on the surface of it, I looked at it so like, okay, does this actually now not mean what it once meant what what are you seeing now in, in the change with that like you marie bullying is you know i we're, we're all concerned about bullying and it's happened it's always happened for um, various reasons and we have to address it pink shirt day was supposed to be all about bullying pride is all about promoting pride is similar it's about promoting but it's probably about promoting rainbow community in the education environment now the the pink shirt day what you might have noticed too is the logo the logo is a rainbow logo okay. which is half maori and half pacifica with a rainbow on the top but yeah. you've also you know you've got all the colors of the rainbow so 
It is. It, you were talking about, yeah, it is diverted into that, um, the whole Pride thing as well. So we've got Pink Shirt Day coming up and then you've got the Pride the Pride Week as well. Now, I want to give you two examples about um, about how this works. We're talking about them being inclusive and yet I'm going to give you two examples of this being exclusion actually and subtly doing what it claims to prevent so you're actually bullying people who don't agree um, I had one young teen male student who emailed me from a boys high school saying that he's fed up with having rainbow content forced on him throughout that school week actually I, I think it's still a week some people tell me it's a month now I don't know but he felt like they wanted to brainwash him into agreeing with something that he doesn't have the same views on you know, they had the flag flying, assemblies, posters everywhere, activism within the school. So when you're talking about, on one hand, this is supposed to be a thing about bullying, it's all, they're pushing this rainbow content and excluding people who don't believe in it. Now, the second example is about a 13-year-old student. She, actually her mother phoned me. She didn't tell her parents that there was a Pride Mufti Day and she chose to wear dark clothing to school. So her mum just thought, well, it's Mufti Day, so, you know, she's she's off to school in her Mufti clothing. But when she got to school, um, one of the teachers said to her, why aren't you wearing colourful clothing? And she said, well, you know, because I don't agree with that. She goes, I have compassion for them, but I don't agree with it, so I'm not, do it, you know, doing that. So, um the teacher turned around and said, well, you were supposed to wear it. Now, they, she knew what was coming up because the assembly was happening and she didn't want to participate in that either because, like she said, she doesn't agree with what it's all about. She didn't want to celebrate it. So she asked to be excluded from that and she was told, no, everybody has to go. So she had to sit in this assembly, but what she did was she took a little video recording and the mother sent that video to me. So I have that recording. And what it looks like is instead of a school assembly, it looks like a drag show. You have two boys coming out on the stage dressed in their glitter dresses, and it's about them coming out to the whole whole school while the teachers are on the side celebrating and clapping and encouraging this um, behaviour. We're pushing it to the extent where the bullying that you talked about is complete celebration of all things rainbow and excluding any other religious belief or cultural people. How does that help any bullying situation? I'm really struggling about that. I mean, the person who behaved with bullying towards women at Albert Park, he's actually the person promotion, promoting the videos. I don't know if you've seen that. Mm, it's Chanel Lowe. It is. Now, he, um, it's highly questionable to have some, to use someone as a model for bullying who actually has displayed this antisocial behaviour towards people simply because they hold a different opinion. It's interesting you should say that. Um, I downloaded the teacher's four-page kit and under cyberbullying, it says, according to NetSafe, there is a growing number of reports about from and about young people who experience a disproportionate amount of online harm. Online bullying can take many forms, including name-calling, repeated unwanted messages, spreading mm. rumours or lies, fake accounts used to harass people, excluding people from social activities, embarrassing pictures, videos, websites or fake profiles. I've seen posts, especially tweets from Chanel mm. in recent times that would at least tick half those boxes. 
Yes, I have been sent a few of those screenshots as well, which were really shocking. I, I can't understand what's going on there, Marie. Why would you give somebody the New Zealander, Young New Zealander of the Year Award straight after that event where there was violence? I think you mentioned it before. There was a woman who had uh, her eye socket punched in. Well, that wasn't Chanel. He was um, he was there with a massive, what do you call those? Mega, megaphone. I don't know if you're aware. I was there. I was actually on the rotunda. So I went that day to be one of the speakers and I was on the rotunda. There's a photo, we've got a recording of him standing above me with his megaphone shouting. You know, it was like this abuse of noise. It was real harassment. So that was pure harassment. The woman there had every right to express their opinions, just like the counter-protesters could do that. But what they did was they silenced they silenced, so they've taken away the right of the group of women to have their views. And this is this is in law. Yet we seem to be allowing it. I'm not. Mm. I'm not sure what's happening there, but I know that there's some court, some court um, cases that are pending. So I won't go too much into that. No. No. Well, you talked about too in terms of kids disengaging with school. Now, following on from that, kids. So that first part was the description of cyberbullying, which was is a great description. That is a useful piece of information. The mm. next paragraph in this kit says online bullying experienced by the rainbow community. Just like with other forms of bullying, Tairua, who identifies lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, or other sexuality and gender diverse communities, and then we have the LGBTQIA+, can be targeted online. Online homophobic, biphobic, and or transphobic bullying can look like taking and sharing photos of videos of rainbow students without consent, taking and circulating online photos and videos of rainbow-focused bullying, either directly bullying or harming a person, or destruction of property, posters, flags, etc. being destroyed, outing people online. This sometimes can happen unintentionally when school staff include uh, rainbow young people in online posts supporting or addressing rainbow issues. Now, taking the last one out, which... I mean, has happened, a Brian Bridge broadcaster that happened to him quite famously many years ago when Mark Richardson accidentally outed him in primetime television. Uh It happens. The other two, I'm sorry, why is taking and sharing photographs of videos of rainbow students without consent, is it only bullying when it's rainbow students? I would have thought taking and sharing photos and videos of any student without consent would constitute bullying. And this is what concerns me. By only highlighting a certain group, a certain collective, that anyone that doesn't fit into that group is automatically excluded. And as you and I both know, all kids want to do is fit in. Mm, Exactly. And as an educator, Throughout our teaching career, we are given explicit instruction that any photos, any photos taken of children, we have to make sure that they, the parents at least, have had given consent. And so, yeah, to be putting this on just for the rainbow community, everything is about the rainbow. We have disabled children in school. We have children who are in wheelchairs, who have, you know, um, I've taught students who are going blind. I've taught so many students with different 
different learning needs and developmental needs. And yet here, all the focus is pushed on this one community. And that community is growing larger every day. And it's not because they're suffering with gender dysphoria. So we've got to go back to the fact that this is supposed to be, with this whole inclusive stuff, it was all around supporting children who apparently had this gender identity disorder. But what it's become is a fad. It's creating all these children with little, um, you know, identities. And like what you've said, because there's so many of them happening now and children want to fit in, they don't want to be excluded. So they're going along with this. You know, you've got children running around, um, you know, the high school playground now saying, I identify as lesbian. I identify as some version of pan-gender or whatever gender it is. They need to apply themselves with a label in order to feel that they're fitting in. And as you said before, some schools even go as far as creating a celebration about that. Now, I'm not saying that children shouldn't be celebrated, but what happened to the days when you go to assembly and you celebrate someone's achievement because of academic success or sporting success or cultural success? That seems to be replaced or overemphasized by Mm. these these other elements. Moving further down, I mean, honestly, this sheet, I tell you. If you're a parent out there and you're listening to this and you're thinking, I have really no idea, go to the Pink Shirt Day website and actually download this form and have a look for yourself. I am not making this up. Uh, Rainbow people are resilient and have higher rates of volunteering and community engagement and are an important part of our community. Despite this, rainbow young people are particularly vulnerable to experiencing homophobic, biphobic or transphobic bullying. I just get really angry because I actually know that every kid experiences bullying in one form or another. And surely Pink Shirt Day should be something that is helping children to identify poor antisocial behavior amongst their peers. And if they're receiving or on the receiving end of poor antisocial behavior amongst their peers, how to be resilient against that behavior and what to do to deal with it. Whereas this, it's highlighting this one community, I just find it really, really difficult. They're talking about um, the effects and how much greater the effects are within these certain communities and are downplaying the effects for other students. But one in five transgender students said that they've been bullied at school weekly more and more often in the past year compared to 5% of cisgender students. That 5%, now I'd love to know of that one in five transgender students, A, how many that actually constitutes in a school? So how many actual transgender students are in a school, for starters? I mean, are there even five to get one in five? And if you look at 5% of cisgender students, well, if you had a a student body Mm. of 500 students, you know, you could be talking about one student who is transgender having being bullied and feeling bad, but you know, 20 normal students who are also being bullied, but they're sort of pushed aside because this is the priority. You know what I mean? Like, I just find that there is a disproportionately gathering resources mm. when yeah. more students are being bullied, but they've been popped off aside because they don't fit into that identity group. Look, you're right. Unfortunately, a majority of people suffer some form of bullying throughout our lives. Okay, it's 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 not. This is not a new thing. It's happened for 
forever and it will continue to happen. We want to, you know, stamp it out and we want to try and stop it, but there's things that you don't see and, and it will happen. Alarmingly, that there's such an obsession with this putting that priority on the trans community. And what is the trans community? What are trans children? Who is born trans? I go back to the gender dysphoria. Trans, what is trans? You're talking about in children, it's a gender dysphoria, they call it, where there's a discomfort with their identity. There is a small percent of children who are generally um, have some confusion, but I don't believe that the majority that we're talking about now is gender dysphoric. I, I believe it's a normal identity crisis that most preteens and adolescents navigate through, usually safely with the support and guidance from trusted Adults. Now, there's research that highlights 80 to 90% of these children who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria grow out of it and are happy with their biological sex. There's false data right now in schools around children who are trans. They're being fed this information. It's right throughout. It's on TikTok. They're watching, you know, all sorts of things on Netflix. It's in the communities. Obviously, the schools are pushing it. And so they're believing that, oh, because I don't fit into that female role I must be trans now I have friends who were tomboys you never ever hear of tomboys anymore it's okay you know what we need to do is tell our children it's okay if you are more masculine as a female and more feminine as a, as a boy it doesn't mean you are transgender it doesn't mean that you have to now go and change your body and socially transition we've got it wrong we have got it completely wrong I'm not going to mince my words we're not talking about fads that can be easily undone with a change of wardrobe or piercing or tattoo removal. We're chopping off and sewing on body parts to create something unnatural. All of this gender ideology stuff leads to one dangerous path, and that is leading children towards, after they social transition, it's towards, well, first puberty blockers, which, you know, that's going to take another session for me to talk to you about, Marie. And once they're on puberty blockers, most of them go to cross-sex hormones. That's a lifetime of medical intervention. You talk about the high suicide rate and the mental health around trans people. Even that data is very misleading because clearly once people are on this path, that actually just increases, that mental health issue increases. And there's facts out now around people who have transitioned that their mental health has actually increased. The, the, the quality of their mental health has declined. Exactly. Isn't that the bat that is used to guilt parents who have got children who are trying to identify who they are and be comfortable in their own skins, that if they don't go down this pathway, that they will leave, be leaving their children open to a risk of suicide. Surely any child that is suffering from anxiety and high stress, whether it be around gender identity, how they fit in, socialisation within schools, any of those children could be facing those risks. What is happening for all children who are struggling in our school environment to find their way? What support are they getting from their schools or are they putting all the eggs in the rainbow and trans basket? Yeah, I think all the eggs are going in the rainbow and trans baskets. I mean, there I have respect for my 
teacher colleagues. You know, there's great teaching staff out there, great school leaders. This is being forced onto schools, even the boards, you know, the boards have got this directive as well. So we need to push back. I think parents don't realise the power that they, you know, and the rights that they have. And it is about you know, the schools are not are not going to stop this. So it is up to the parents to actually make a stand and, you know, gathering groups. I'm actually meeting with a group of parents next week who have got the puberty coming up. And so I'm meeting up with them because they're very concerned. I spoke, I did an interview with a parent last week as well who her daughter transitioned through uh, high school in Christchurch and she's now the daughter is on this these hormone treatment and you know has a beard and is um, living as a male so this is really alarming it is in New Zealand and there's high numbers of these children that are being fed down this um, horrific path it's not just about you know supporting accepting being tolerant of different people how they live it's actually forcefully pushing children who are vulnerable down this path of confusion and you know we need to take back control of our children we need to take back control of our schools uh, this should be illegal illegal for teachers to be telling children that they that there's some people who can be born in the wrong body and to be pushing these lessons and it's not only the gender stuff uh, marie i was horrified somebody gave me a a book from family planning which is used in high schools for sex education now i looked at the date and it was actually published in 2010 so this stuff has been in our schools around the sex ed for a lot longer and the explicit language that is used in these lessons um I spoke to a room full of adults and told them about it and they were horrified with the language I used and I said to them well if you are feeling horrified about that how do you think your teenagers feel because these lessons are taught to you know teenagers in school and um, it's it's appalling we need to expose it all we need to have an investigation we need to put a halt on the sexuality and gen- uh, education guidelines um you know, a majority, I think there was, a, there was a survey done last year where 69% of parents said that they do not um, want their children exposed to this gender ideology. 15% didn't know, probably because they don't understand it. You know, when I first put the petition out, some of my colleagues said to me, oh, Helen, you know, I don't, don't think it's, this is happening. That was four years ago. Now, Everybody knows it's happening. I had a person who was watching me recently at one of the shows where we had our stool, and she came over and asked me if I was Helen Houghton. I said, yes. She goes, she thanked me. She said, I'm a teacher, and I've got three students who are trying to tell me that I need to call them by the opposite sex. She has said to those children that until they give a written permission slip from their parents, she will not be doing that. So this is throughout New Zealand now and it's really concerning we have got to yeah stand up about it we have uh, I, I do see there's lots of groups now who are opposing it and coming out so the lucky book club for, particularly for my oldest son was like his favorite thing he loved the scholastic lucky book club mm. and he uh, had severe dyslexia so we loved the fact that there were often resources or books or things there that he could engage with to help him with his learning difficulty. So it was always very cherished when the Lucky Book Club came around. In the latest Lucky Book Club, we have several titles. 
one called Jamie, an uplifting story about making your own place in the world where you don't think fits in. On the surface of that, actually, you think, oh, yeah, that that sounds um, pretty good. But when you actually look at the imagery on the front of the book, you can see the direction they're wanting to send you in. Mm. Uh, another one called Break the Mold, How to Take Your Place in the World, A Guide into Believing in Yourself and Finding Comfort and Pride in Your Own Skin. And my two personal favourite, now it does say here young adult issues, but the imagery on both of these is imagery that I would not put with young adult, it is imagery that I would put with much younger children. One is called The Girl from the Sea. Uh, Morgan has many secrets, including one about wanting to kiss a girl. And the other one is Max, your average trans male. Your average trans male. Average. Average, yes. As he's descended from a long line of magical girls. If you are an adult and you feel that this is where you want to go as an mm-hmm. adult, mm-hmm. have at it. Yep. Don't have an issue with it. What I do have an issue with is when we've got these young minds that, to my mind, when they go to school, they should be, as I said before, learning the basics of what they require to learn to help them move out into the bigger, wider world in regards to reading competency, numeracy, history, all of these elements that will take them not only from high school but into further education or work opportunities. Mm. This is this is social grooming. This is this is stepping over a boundary as an educator that I believe as a child is my right as a parent to exercise. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Now, the, at the beginning, I did say that this is one of the areas that is uh, impacting the lower standards of achievement and the, you know, uh, achievement levels are hitting rock bottom. And we've got what half of the half of the people who are enrolled in half children enrolled in school not attending school can you blame them though like I said I have students who message me who are fed up with it let alone parents being very cross about who who handed over parenting role to the government government are there to serve us and yet they're actually indoctrinating children through state-funded education it's propaganda it is lies it's not factual stuff our children are not going to school anymore for academics. They're going there to be fed uh, one particular view from a rainbow view. And it is, it's appalling and you need to, all people need to actually oppose it. This has been taken out of some schools overseas. It's been banned now in some countries. When is New Zealand going to wake up and start pushing back? We need to get this government to stop it. But we, the Labour government are all for it. The Labour and the Greens are the ones who are pushing it. They have the ministers who are being very forceful pushing this through. You know, the Greens party, um, Dr Kitty Kitty, she's behind a lot of this stuff with the young people as well. So we have to think about who the MPs are and who you want in government because they're the ones getting involved in the policy, they're the ones that are pushing it. Where's the democracy? The majority of New Zealand parents do not want this in schools. That's why we have an exodus, actually, since we exposed it. There was an exodus of parents opting out to homeschool. Parents can't afford to do that, but they, they'd rather that than have put their children into dangerous, harmful places. One of the most important things throughout my teaching career, the, one of the teaching codes around providing a, ensuring a safe environment for all students, that was my main Thing. And, you know, like I said, 
when I saw this, I knew straight away I had to do something about it. I was not providing a safe space for children by allowing this teaching to continue. And yet that's what they're trying to use against me as a teacher. The Teaching Council have a letter where they make it very clear that they will discipline any teaching staff who who oppose it, who don't go along with it. Well, what you described before by a letter being sent to the Teachers' Council mm. is very analogous to any medical professional, whether it be a nurse, a midwife, a doctor, who, if they speak out against the current orthodoxy of this government, they mm. find themselves up in front of their governing body and their professional career and their, and their ability to continue in their professional career is hung over them like a threat in order to toe the line. There is concern now with teachers that they are about to strike again. This is a hobby horse. I'm going to get on a hobby horse. I'm sorry, Helen, Mm, um, about the strikes because I'm really torn. I've got a lot of friends that are teachers and I have been really blessed. I've had wonderful relationships with my son's teachers over many years and they are they put in the work, you know, they really do put in the work. Mm. The strike action is happening at the moment and the disruption with the strike action, I got an email from my son's art teacher this week saying that one of the assessments that was planned for term one, which was an internal assessment for worth a certain number of credits, is going to get moved further down the year if they can fit it in because the disruptions caused this mm-hmm. year, citing specifically cyclone and strike action, has literally meant that they haven't been able to get the body of work done in order to be able to complete this internal assessment. And I know for a fact this this particular school that the boys are in, they have applied for exemptions. A lot of these teachers are, are so worried about the impact that it's having on these kids. And yet the union is saying no, and they're not allowing these teachers to or these schools to exempt out from strike action, even though the teachers want to be there in front of students teaching schools. I mean, what does this tell our our kids? You know, it's hard enough. As you said, 50% of these kids are struggling to get these kids back to school after all the disruptions of COVID and now the union are taking this time to turn around and saying right no look let's give them some more disruption you know they're groomed to that now that they're used to it. Yeah there's lots we can say there and you've got you've got a silly MP who is now the acting education minister talking about oh we'll get truancy people on board I mean it's got nothing to do with that it's just so ridiculous there's she's got no idea honestly she's up at eerie fairy we need good people. We need people with common sense in Parliament because we're ruining, ruining education. We're ruining the health sector. We're ruining so many great areas. We, we were high in education before and now we're failing. The overcrowded curriculum is a huge problem in our education sector. So for, for, for years in education, we had to sit through numerous professional development where you would have so-called expert come in to show us how this is a better way to teach maths you know and then we'd experiment on the children for a few months until the next expert comes along and we do some more professional development again disrupting learning because we're trialing something else we're putting so many different um, strategies onto children you know we're talking about children children have to develop you know things get a foundation of skills and basics before they can move on to to other things but we're pushing so many things onto them with this crowded curriculum around 
even around values. I mean, whose values are we teaching? Mm. You know, this whole, you know, going back to the gender stuff, you know, we're, we're disrupting learning by having to be talking about all of these things within the school. It's, you know, they bring in groups and encourage children to be involved in all these groups. I'm here with Helen Houghton, co-leader of the New Conservative Party, and we're discussing gender in our New Zealand schools. But I just want to talk about the legal rights of schools and what, who's pushing this is the Inside Out. So they have resources on their website that assist teachers bringing a rainbow culture into the classroom and across the whole school. And I know we don't have time to refer to all those all this concerning information, but I just want to highlight one particular that they've actually put out for children. So if children can go on to their website. It's a resource for rainbow youth, they call it. And the contents, in the contents page, it's got, I am a rainbow young person, but not everyone at my school knows. Can my school out me without my consent? It's interesting that they say that because you're talking on one hand, you talked before about the photos and consent and all that, but we're talking about children. On the one hand, they're saying, you know, that teachers can't out them without their consent. And yet on the other, they're creating this massive celebration on outing them themselves, outing children who are probably not even, you know, on that rainbow spectrum, but they are, you know, they're pushing it. And they have, they're outing them, they're outing children. So that this is a personal private thing, your sexual, your identity, all of that stuff is things that parents and, you know, if there's more confusion there or more concerns, parents would want to support their children and with qualified, you know, people outside of school, not in school where your parents aren't there, your safe, trusted person is not there. You've got um, a whole bunch of, you know, people that you're never going to see probably again, and they're the ones talking about your personal private matters. Uh, in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, you're going to think, oh, my gosh, I was in that, you know, on stage celebrating this diversity in a dress, and, and that was just a stage, you know. I mean, how embarrassing for those people. Now, they also have in the contents Queer Straight Alliance and Rainbow Diversity Groups, and they're coaching children. These are the questions. My school is stopping me from setting up a queer diversity group. Are they allowed to do that? What can I do? Another one, can a religious or private school stop me from setting up a queer straight rainbow group? Can my school put a restriction on who attends the group based on their age? <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't matter. Five-year-olds can come along to these groups where they're talking about sexual identities. Can my school block websites such as Inside Out from being assessed at school? Can my school stop me from hugging, kissing my partner at school? This is all you know, an organisation, institution funded by our taxpayer money who are coaching your children. Uh, it's got here, if you have requested that your personal information such as your self-determined name, pronouns and or gender is not shared with your parents, then the school must respect this request unless they're legally required to share this information. To maintain your privacy, your school should consider how any changes made to your records in the student management system may come across when communicating with your parents. So hold on, just let's yep. just back that truck up a little bit here. No. So that is if Joe J O is Joe mm -hmm. at home, Joanna at home, and Joe mm -hmm. wants to become J O E at school, mm -hmm. that they're asking that the school must respect that they are one identity at the school allow them to live, so social transition, is that yes. the term for it, 
at yes. school, but when they go to parent teacher and you're sitting down and you're discussing Joe's mm. progress at school, that they're not to be outed to the parents. No, they're still Joanne. They're Joanne in that interview. So they are deceiving parents. They're lying. And this is inside out. It's on their website and the legal rights at school for children. This is coaching children how to deceive parents, how to go and and advocate um, to their school teacher and the principal. These are just a selection of questions I've given to you. It's alarming. It's actually criminal. This should be. Never mind them saying it's illegal rights at school. This uh, there should be legal case against this organisation coaching children. It's manipulation of a whole school body. Yeah. So just be aware. There's some serious issues happening. Now, Hera Bell regretted her transition. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's over in the UK. Not one adult said no while she was a child or told her to wait. She said the risks of, you know, what happened, the change were not explained to her. Instead, she was just affirmed, which is what we're doing now in New Zealand. She said getting help, instead of getting help, she was treated like an experiment. And at 22 years old, she said that as a younger person, she made a brash decision as a teenager. And that transitioning was a very temporal, superficial fix for a very complex issue. Three judges made the call that 16-year-olds did not have the capacity to consent. Yet we have encouraged and forced teachers to be complicit in allowing children to make these decisions. Puberty blockers, Mm -hmm. because puberty is puberty. So I'm assuming that these need to be administered. We're not going to go down this whole, I think that's a whole other show, but just to, to lay some foundation for a next time, that says that they need to be administered to prevent puberty coming on. So we're talking, what, 11, 12 year olds here, even younger? Yes, correct. Can those be administered without parental consent? So if they are someone who is identifying and gone through a social transition at school and mm-hmm. someone at school is potentially encouraging them, can they then help them, help the student get this sort of medical intervention without parental consent, do you know? I don't know the exact facts about if that's happening in New Zealand. I know it's happened overseas. Now, this parent I spoke with and interviewed last week The first time she found out that her daughter was identifying as a male at school was when a school counsellor phoned her, telling her that she needed to go and see a GP because her daughter was suicidal. She had been, you know, identifying at school and the parent wasn't, uh, they didn't need to tell the parent anything. And the school hadn't contacted her, the principal hadn't contacted her, the teacher hadn't contacted her. So if you're thinking about that when you're, you know, thinking about this question, it's something that we need to look into. I know that there's some professional people, medical professional people here who are who are all over that, um, the puberty blockers right now because they have major concerns. So it would be a question that we need to dig deeper into to find out if they are going to be administering, you know, schools eventually going down this track. When you go on to find out a bit more about the Inside Out group, uh, I'd say that would be the place to end up. I had to step out of the school system to challenge this. So I'm not teaching now. You know, I love teaching, but I am not teaching now because I know that I cannot fight this in the system. Like I said, I've had teaching mm. council. Um, So I doubt that they'll allow me to have my registration back. So I've had to 
you know, step into politics to fight it. So I don't know exactly right now whether that would be happening, but I do know that the Inside Out group, they send out their people as soon as there's a child in the school, because I was there as a child was transitioning. I was in the school when a child had come back the next year, started the year off on his transition um, to be a girl, and they had the rainbow people, they have all their facilitators, they come out and tell the school what you need to do now how to treat this child, the lessons you need to take, what you need to do around changing the bathrooms, all of that. They they come into the school and now direct the school what they need to do to support this potential um, trans person. Now, after this, this child was coming out, they brought the puberty lessons in and I was teaching in a senior class the very day after they had the lesson from the facilitators. This is how insidious this agenda is. I was, you know, teaching, normal teaching, and I noticed this boy at the back of the classroom with his iPad. He looked like he was doing something strange. And I just questioned him. I said, what are you, you know, what are you up to? And he said, I'm actually just looking, using this um, app to find out what I would look like as a female. Now I highlight this because this particular student has two older siblings, they're females, and they're high achievers. They get a lot of attention, as you can imagine. This particular boy doesn't get a lot of attention. Do you see where I'm going with this? Mm. How concerning this is? I think, think, and also to attention-seeking behaviour. I mean, you would know more as a teacher, but I certainly know as a parent, attention-seeking behaviour is a modus operandi 101 for a child. I mean, that's all they ever want is love and attention. That, again, is another social concern, surely, at these schools. If so much attention has been applied to these children in order to identify as one of these groups, this is grooming them into that behaviour. What happens that after all of this attention, after the getting up and coming out and claps and adulation and what have you at school that goes on, what then happens if that student decides actually... I'm not trans, I'm just gay. Or, and that has happened. That does and, happen. Yeah, or I'm not even trans, I'm not even gay. It's like, mm, okay, that was a phase, but I just want to get on with my life. Um, how, how do they step that back? What is the mental health implications of them stepping back? And what support do they get from those communities when they say, actually, no, I want to step back? Or is it once they've got their clutches into you, they don't let you go? Actually, you, you've made a good point there. So the... This has happened. It happens a lot. And and you just need to jump online and you'll see all the detransitioners. Now, what they've talked about, the detransitioners, is they were then bullied, would you believe, by the community, the very community that had embraced them and, and led them down this path. And so what they do is they bully them and shut them down to silence them because they don't want the truth to be known that this is a complete and utter farce. This is this is factual stuff. It's everywhere. There's so many detransition. There's detransitioner groups out there to help support those who have fallen into this trap. I'm glad they're getting help while they're actually helping each other. I've interviewed a um, man, Walt Heyer, who was he lived the life of a um, the opposite sex for many years, and he's you know he's out there with the support, helping so many people 
transition back. And these are adults, you know, that started the transition as adults for a different kind of um, mental health issues. And we need to support people who ha- who are struggling in the mental health area. And, and there's some things that can happen throughout your lifetime that can, where you are more vulnerable. Mm. They also say that the there's 80 to 90% of these people that, yeah, like you said, uh, either in this fad or believe that you know, they they might not be in the right body that grow out of that. There's also a large percent, something like 70% of these people identifying who are on the autism spectrum. That's hugely concerning because we're not giving them enough support. Instead, we're um, feeding them to the wolves, basically, by saying, oh, you, you, you know, you don't matter to us by allowing them to be victimised by a, a massive corporation who, yeah, there's a lot of money in this. As you can imagine, the surgeries, the money that is in this is mind-boggling. If you um, dig a bit further about you know how this is pushed by sur- you know, in the surgery um, and even the psychiatrist area. So, yeah, there's a lot more that we could talk about uh, at some point, but it's hugely alarming that this is in our schools for our children, concerned for parents, concerned for our children. So, so for parents now who are a little bit worried, where can they go to actually get a broader picture and what are some of the things that they can do to uh, help sort of either work with their child to get questions answered, a full risk management or risk analysis benefit for a child because I think they're all only getting, as you said, one lot of messaging. And what sort of interactions can parents have with schools to just sort of say, hey, look, I'm a little bit concerned about this. What do you suggest that they do? Okay, so at the beginning, what we need to do is have make sure that the government have more increased public and parent consultation throughout anything that's going into schools. You know, that that's where it's starting. Okay, so we have to push for that to ensure that we have more parent consultation. These people should not be given access into schools, even involving the children commissioner. I would be, if you're a parent out there who's got grave concerns and you're seeing this stuff, get a, get a group of you together and and get with your with the children's commissioner. We need to call for. I mean. As a political person, I'm going to be calling for a review and independent investigation into this. We have got a number of different groups now who have woken up to this and are very aware of the danger. There's ex-teachers who have put together an organisation called Resist Gender Education. They have um, a vast selection of resources to help parents. So I'll say that again, Gender Resist Education, go onto their website. They have resources there to help parents know what to ask the school. There is Family First Organisation. They have also been uh, exposing this and they have, gosh, I've got a couple of documents out now helping parents, but also schools, how to deal with this to support children who might be questioning so, yeah, those are both two very good organisations. So I would go on there and download their documents. They are really good reading. I think Family First has even got templates for you to send off to your school principal and to the board of trustees um, to make sure that you have input uh, as well as getting that excluding your children from those lessons. That's a good start. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Look, thank you so much for that information. We've got a lot more to talk about, and I know that we will talk about this topic even further over the next coming weeks and months. And dare I say it, Helen, we may even talk about politics before the election. Oh, no. Oh, no. I am with Helen Houghton, uh, the co-leader of the New Conservative Party. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, Don't go away. We've still got more to come here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. You are with Counterculture. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for... A reality check. Reality check. RCR. Reality check radio. Rational discussion. Common sense. And open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Marty Gibson will join me for Media Matters and we will discuss the political shenanigans of the past week, the Disinformation Project report and more. The woke word of the week is still to come. You are with Counterculture. You're with Reality Check Radio with Marie here on Counterculture. It is now time for Media Matters. And joining me, as always, is Marty Gibson. How are you, Marty? I'm awesome, thank you, Marie. Yes, good, busy week. It has been a busy week, and it's been a busy week in politics. Well, yes, we're starting to get to the pointy end. So the defection with Mika Whaitere, which of course is huge news, because I live in the Ikaroarafiri electorate, and she is a uh, Hastings girl, so they had the big announcement here last week. Uh, so Mika is jumping ship. Walker. I know lots of people have covered why she's doing that and what was her reasoning, and there was lots of fluffy language around how she was protecting her mana and coming home. I have to admit, for me, I would have loved to have been the fly on the wall when Labour dispatched the ex-girlfriend for her to go down and try and talk her out of it. I thought that was an interesting move. The unity among Maori politicians is not widely appreciated. They're not as tribal politically as, as they like to present themselves for the theatre of it. I was just re-looking at some papers and there was a uh, an interview on Monday, April 10th, uh, New Zealand Herald w- with Willie Jackson. One of the things he said was, it's a different thing in the Māori world. You know, we are all friends and whānau, we give each other a crack and then we have a kai together and plan the next hui together. And this was something that Trevor Loudon said in his interview with Rodney Hyde, which is, I still think, one of the best interviews that, that's been on this platform, um, where he said, you know, it was surprising how how many of, of these people who were planted in different political systems 
were on board with putting the Mayo into Māori. Um, the other thing he said is, uh, whether we like it or not, there is a conservative Māori vote. They don't like it. No. And that's the one thing that never gets talked about. It is a conundrum. Where does a conservative Māori voter go? Well, where does a Māori uh, politician go once they get into the system and they work out that it's all bullshit? And and all the things that everyone's saying they want to do is just window dressing. I've got a theory about uh, about this. Women thought that the Rockefellers and the CIA were helping to uplift them when they funded feminism. But what they were actually funding was division and demoralization of their most likely opponents. And I think a lot of this division that we're getting through this driving of these radical race racist agendas uh they're not to uplift maori but to demoralize new zealanders and delegitimize their being here with all this talk about colonization and i hope that maori wake up to it get off the reservation before they end up as nati Uyghur, before they find out that these Pākehā they've been living alongside for 180 years, who actually get on all right with, and they've got whānau whakapapa links with, maybe we should have just gotten together and uh, done a bit of know-your-enemy stuff. Mm. Shane Jones had a really interesting interview with Paul Brennan uh, recently, so I do suggest people, if they haven't heard that, look it up. And there was a lot about Shane that I didn't know. He's a likeable rogue. He really Mm. is. One of the things that he said that stuck with me in that interview is similar to what you're saying in the sense that as Māori, it's time for them to put the K back into iwi. Mm. As you said, there are strong whakapapa links. I mean, my family is a classic example of that on both sides. We see ourselves as New Zealanders as Kiwis first uh, that happen to have Māori ancestry and Irish ancestry and German ancestry and all of these things, whereas that's where the identity politics that come into play, whereas the Maoism, the Mao that's in Māori is saying to them, no, you must, your identity is what defines you. And that takes strips away that individualism. So where, if you are a conservative Māori, who you are that single sovereign individual on the land, where do you go politically? It's uh, fairly slim pickings now. I mean, now that Mecca has jumped ship across to the Māori party, which for me has got Tamahiri's tendrils all over it. Was this a let's bring Mecca over uh, with a strong likelihood or push that we believe that she's going to retain that seat, which will give us more power and influence in terms of bods on the ground? We then put ourselves in that kingmaker position come the election, and we can now start pushing through our gender, particularly around like welfare. I mean, if you've seen some of this stuff in welfare reform, to quote Daryl Kerrigan from the castle, they're dreaming. I don't know how on earth they believe they're going to have that funded or paid for. And you're right. As you said, there's a really tight connection. Willie Jackson is very honest when he says there's a tight connection amongst Māori politicians. I mean, from what I understand, he's pretty tight with William Ormsby, who's the husband of uh, Nanaia Mahuta. Husband and cousin. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. I don't know what's going to go on. It's certainly interesting. I think if you're not across Māori politics, I think you need to be aware of this because this potentially could be the thing that upsets the apple cart because it is 
I think that's what Tamahiri is looking at doing. I think he's looking at exerting even more power, making sure this co-governance uh, gets across the line, and this is how he's doing it. And I think there could be more defections. Yeah, I mean, getting back to that very telling April 10th article, what he says uh, about the difference between Labour and the Māori Party is they always go for perfection. I go for what's possible. I don't need Māori Party MPs to show me the way in terms of what's right. And that's the same with the Green Party, you know, and you could argue it's the same with National Act as well. You know, they want to get into a coalition so they can twist their hair into pigtails and go, well, you know, it's not us. They made us do it, you know, when it's what they want to do all the time, but they need to get those centre voters. It's cynical and deceptive and it's not healthy for New Zealand's political scene. No, it certainly isn't. They also play on the assumption that if you're a Māori voter, that you will only vote in one political direction. And that, as we both know, is not true. No. And, you know, I'm surprised, again, that National don't pull out some of those quotes from that golden age of um, Māori politicians, Apirana Ngāta, Buck. You know, they were adamant that uh, welfare was going to poison Māori. I've got a theory about socialism when you realise it's time to get off your ass and exercise because things have gone a little bit too far and you start and it's horrible and you get a little voice in your head that says, oh, why do we have to do this? Oh, you know, I'm being judged by other people. It's, that's not fair. That pathetic, whiny little voice that wants to keep you down and stop you making progress, unfortunately, has political representation in socialism. That's what it is. It's the voice of making excuses and justifying poor performance and inaction and victimization. You getting a better share of things mm. with no effort. The weak aspect of Maori eats that up, and really they're much better off with a stronger let's get moving message that's more empowering and, and also pulls them together. So, as I often say, Pākehā and Maori can be more than the sum of our parts rather than at war with each other. It will be really interesting to see where things go. I, I think that there could be more defections. I don't know what's going to happen with Dr Elizabeth Kitty. Is she up for grabs for the Māori Party? I mean, she's certainly in the radical element within the Greens, so she may find herself a nice little cosy home across there. I don't know what gravitas she would pull across to the Māori Party. I mean, the one thing I would give John Tamahiri, he is a political animal. He knows how the game is played. And he will play it. Uh, I don't know whether it's been announced, but I did read somewhere. I think he was lining up uh, people like Butterbean, Dave Latelli, to run in, in Auckland. So I don't right. know whether that's come off. It will be very, very interesting. And then we go from that, from the ridiculous to the sublime. Did you see the most ridiculous puff piece? What are we talking here? Which one? Michael Wood. Yeah, I know. Oh. <laughs> narrow it down, Marie. Narrow it down. Uh, the Michael, Michael Wood, Wood piece. You yeah. know, do you find reading the paper, it's it's kind of high fiber reading, isn't it? You've got to really chew a lot of stuff. There's not a lot of nutritional content, and it gives you the shits if you get too much of it. That Michael yeah. Wood, I mean, I was reading it. I was trying to get some nutrition out of it. I was it's trying to get one probing question. or And, of course, you read it all in his voice, you know. It's all his quotes. <laughs> For those who haven't read it, and believe me, you're not missing anything, uh, the man who wants to fix the Auckland disease, hmm, interesting imagery, 
the Auckland disease, Minister for Auckland Michael Wood opens up to Simon Wilson about the government's commitments to the city. Now, I love the little quote that they popped out next to his rather large, large picture in the middle of the road. It says, my job is to be the glue and the collaborator that gets people in the room to make progress. Really, Michael? Oh, okay. So obviously no rivers of filth in Auckland then. Yeah, I was like you. I thought, okay, because he's one of these Labour ministers of everything. And we all know that there are some deep issues in Auckland. The most interesting thing about the entire piece was on transport, which, as we know, if you've spent any time living in Auckland, is an arse ache. The most substantive thing about the entire piece was around... Uh, bus drivers saying the trouble is despite funding package bus services haven't been expanded the acute shortage of drivers and COVID related cancellations have reduced their scope was the government too slow to recognize the problem Wood said they're making progress and bus patronage in Auckland is now up to 85 percent of pre-COVID levels uh, but well short of Wellington at 100 percent Lo and behold, Wood said, you can do that for 15 years, but drivers are treated like rubbish and they leave the industry. We're fixing that. We're putting 60 million in the budget last year and we're now flowing that through to bus drivers in Auckland and around the country. The shortfall of more than 500 drivers has now shrunk to 350 and is on track to fall much further as new drivers finish their training. Yeah, I mean, we've got um, buses here in Papamoa and uh, most of them could be replaced by an eight-seater minivan for, for how many people you see in them. Mm. I worked over uh, the other side of town for a while and it took me um, half an hour to drive there. I thought maybe I should catch the bus. I, I did the research and it, it would take three hours. Well, I thought the most interesting thing was and it went totally unchallenged. We said, Simon Wilson said, no other part of New Zealand features the extremes of inequity. Is that word equity? Find in Auckland, though, because it's so big and sprawling, it's quite easy not to see the contrasts up close. Does the minister for Auckland think the government is doing enough to help Aucklanders who get left behind or at risk of it? Uh, he said, are we there yet? No, but there is real progress. He talked about reductions in child poverty across all of the measures that we have and higher benefit levels and indexed minimum wage, a massively expanded social housing program. But no Do you substantive really believe data. believe that child poverty is has uh, gone back un, uh, according to all measures. Maybe there's the weasel words of across all the measures we have. In that, what they're doing is they're chucking a lot of money at welfare. I talked to a guy yesterday who, after four years of of not claiming the benefits, being a sole parent, not working, I think he's helped out by his parents, can stay in a house they've got. He went and saw um, the Ministry of Social Welfare, I think at the start of the year, and you know looked at getting some benefits. He went back and said five months later or whatever it is, and said you know I'd like to restart that process. They didn't look for any proof of his rent, of his income, bank statements, and they back paid him eleven thousand dollars from when he first inquired about it. Well, a lot of people who are living in poverty aren't necessarily in poverty because of a lack of money. And some, some people, if you give them money, they'll kill themselves. Mm. Especially if you give them 11 grand at a, at a big bunch. And it's also to the, the use of the word poverty, because it's not poverty in a third world standard. I think, as Jacinda once said, no, we're referring to relative poverty. Yeah, equity. They want equity. Mm. That goes right through the teaching, goes back to that uh, teacher's issue, trying to give extra teaching to kids who are showing talent. And, and the deputy principal said, their cup is full. 
you know, all the maths, you know, kind of bring, bringing kids who are good at maths together with kids who aren't in the hope that equity, such a rotten way of looking at the world. No, it certainly is. Claire Trevitt in the Weekend Herald, she did her piece, Winter's the Biggest Threat to Hipkins Honeymoon, uh, Health and Economic Storms Ahead Capable of Casting a Chill on Labour's Election Hopes. Last winter did not con- coincide with high inflation, high interest rates or expected recession, nor did it have the election at its end. These were on the horizon and they're now all here. This year's winter plan includes measures such as virtual consultations and allowing GPs to refer patients to some specialists, rather than than hospitals having to do so uh, in discussing with the pressures of the health system. Its success is heavily reliant on people helping themselves, such as by getting vaccinated for both flu and the new bivalent COVID-19 vaccine. That'll, that'll be the answer, won't it? So I'm just going to unpack that for two reasons, because as you know, that this health stuff is the hobby horse of mine. This year's winter plan includes measures such as virtual consultations. Well, where have we had that before? Mm. in lockdowns. I can't say that the health system was improved by this. And then allowing GPs to refer patients to some specialists rather than a hospital having to do so. Now, I'm a bit perplexed because I understand how the referral system works. And generally, a GP will refer a patient into a department for specialist consultation, and they get an appointment with a specialist is what happens in the public system. So and instead, instead of the hospital having to do so, well, I think what this is meaning, that they're going to move first, first specialist assessments back out into the private sector, and they're going to contract that out. It's the only thing it can mean, surely. Well, I, I was the same as you. I thought GPs could refer yeah. to specialists. Um, I'm picking that that's what's going to happen, and this happens every single election cycle, particularly with the Labour government, is a massive dollop of money gets pumped into the um, hospital system within six months out from the election. And they do it to try and push waiting lists down, get surgical numbers up. They spray and pray money into the private sector to try and get as many patients pushed through so then they can cook the books to have it look good leading into the election. So this is obviously what this is, is to pump money into FSAs. So then when they can say, yes, we've managed to get through X number of people into first specialist assessments which will lead to getting to the waiting list and then obviously the trope of but people can help themselves uh, by getting the both the flu and the bivalent COVID-19 vaccine I think the uptake for that has been really poor and they did address it in the next paragraph the government has provided the means for that but there's also concerns vaccine fatigue or complacency has set in because too many people have had COVID-19 and are not necessarily finding it severe. Shocker. Natural immunity, Marty. You can't let that get in the way of a good story, can you? Yeah, and you can't uh, focus on uh, helping people with their natural immunity because then they'd be less reliant on government, and that's not the game. It'd be good to hear a lot more from the Auditor General about the spray and pray stuff, wouldn't it? You know, because it's so cynical and it's so transparently not good for the country. And, you know, we we were talking about what would we do uh, if we were Chris Bishop running Nationals campaign. And I thought, you know, we, we probably just sort of painted ourselves into a corner where we where we asked ourselves a question and, and hadn't necessarily um, formulated a, a logical 
uh, ordered answer. But what um, nationals should do is they should talk about transferring funding from ministry policy wonks and make work jobs into frontline services. And they should do it by saying, say, uh, to the Ministry of Education, you justify the spending in the light that you're taking this money away from remedial reading programs or improvements to uh, teacher numbers or let's improve the education system away from 50% of kids who go through it can't read in an enumerate. And that way, as we said, that kindness monopoly that the Labour Party have inexplicably been allowed to carry on with. Yeah, there's lots of uh, let's rob Peter to pay Paul. We hear all about paying Paul, but we never hear where we've robbed Peter. Well, it's not even robbing Peter. It's because, as I always say, you know, you get in saying this is taxpayer money. It's not taxpayer money. It's money of our children, you know, that, that are going to have to pay back loans. It's borrowed money. It's putting, you know, like any good student politician, they've been given a credit card and surprise, surprise, they're not using it uh, responsibly. Speaking of people that understand all about money flowing into government, you had uh, picked up the piece with Stephen Joyce this weekend. You know, I always enjoy his take on things because he's he's so affable. He's basically did a contrast between where this government is now and where the Clark government was when they lost the election to National. And, you know, his summary is one that, you know, you, you don't hear enough of in the media. The economy has become, there is every chance it is already in recession ahead of a predicted slowdown in the rest of the world. The Reserve Bank is continuing to lift interest rates in an attempt to cut off the persistent inflation. The balance of payments is blown out to record levels, a sure sign the country is living beyond its means. The government has lifted its spending dramatically over recent years, but it doesn't seem to be improving public services. The public are getting restless after, as their after-tax incomes are squeezed. The ratings agencies are just starting to get nervous. So he's saying Labor got voted out of office last time. Inflation wasn't as high as it is now. The balance of payments deficit, while it had blown right out, was not as big as, big as, it, as it is now. Just like Robertson, Cullen hated reducing taxation. So, yeah, he's sort of saying it, grew, it took Cullen nine years to grow government expenditure at the same rate Grant Robertson has managed in six. And then he talks about some of the positives around Cullen's conservative financial stewardship that uh, surprise, surprise, a Marxist student politician who's never had a uh, real job that didn't involve political brown nosing. That's the thing, the excuses that will get thrown. There will be, oh, we've had these disasters, that we have had, there's been COVID, you know, there's always a reason. The fact that the media allows them to keep saying it was COVID rather than it was the government's response to COVID. You've got to sympathise with them. They were probably uh, pretty scared if they didn't know about it. One of the things Stephen Joyce will often do in many of his pieces is he also offers a view for the future. Has he given us any indications of what he can see could or should happen? Well, yeah. He, You think, is he talking to the National Party still? Because he basically offers them up an election campaign plan. And that's the other thing I like about Stephen Joyce. He was always, well, you know, I would have liked to have had a crack at being Prime Minister, but they didn't want me and I'm not about to get back into politics. He said, uh, what does the government need to do in its budget in just 12 days' time to avoid meeting the fate of its 2008 forerunner? To my mind, there are about five things. And I just, you know, meet the recovery needs of the folks in Hawke's Bay, Gisborne, Coromandel and Auckland 
Second was it must find a way to improve basic services like health, education, now transport without feeding inflation. Uh, it will need to find a way to ease inflationary pressures on the squeezed middle. Uh, it will need to have a real plan for economic growth. And last, the budget will need to show a plan not just to come into balance, but actually reduce government debt. I mean, there's National's election plan right there. You know, if they were on that, they'd be ahead in the polls. So he's sort of saying, well, you know, Grant Robertson will have to stop defending all his previous actions if this budget is to be the one New Zealand needs. Unfortunately, there is something about the history of, of Labour governments spending buckets of money and ignoring the consequences, which doesn't provide reassurance. Uh, will this one go down like the last one or wake up in time? He knows. He knows yeah. they're not. Uh, yeah, so, he does know. Yeah. And, you know, what was nice about that plan? What was it, a five-point plan? Not one hint of diversion, equity or, or inclusion in that plan whatsoever. Ah. It was sticking to your knitting kind of stuff. And and at the end of the day, we all want to know that our health is taken care of and if we need that ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, it is there. We want to know that our children are going to be well educated uh, and we want to make sure that as a nation, we're healthy economically to be able to offer basic services when required. And actually, as he said, deal with those uh, disaster relief areas. I mean, here in Hawke's Bay, there were several pieces. Again, there was a review piece around some of the areas that have been missed here in the Bay. Mm. Really frustrating. Long-term compassion. You know, that, that, that should be the National Party's brand. Or even medium-term compassion. <laughs> yeah. Well, we touched there on health before and a story that both you and I pulled out, uh, 94 hours in A&E. I think it was the lead story in the Herald. Yeah, the Weekend Herald. A mental health patient in Auckland City Hospital was made to wait 94 hours in an emergency department because there were no beds available in the psychiatric unit, according, according to a damning internal email obtained by the Weekend Herald. Anecdotally, it may be the longest ever stay for a mental health patient in New Zealand ED, the doctor said. Two other acutely unwell patients were marooned in ED the same, at the same time. They waited 58 and 65 hours to be admitted to Te Whete Tawera, a 58-bed inpatient psychiatric facility, the email said. So this, to me, is twofold. This shows you the absolute crumbling nature of our EDs, literally the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, but also too it goes to highlight um, that where was all this money that this government was supposed to be spending on improving the number of beds in mental health? Mm. Yeah. How much was it? Was it $500 million? They're saying here staffing shortages have become so critical in some places that wards were struggling to deliver an adequate level of care, avoiding harmful mistakes and protect staff from patients who are abusive and violent. Extraordinary delays for these patients happened soon after Auckland City's hospital ED became overcrowded in March that some people were moved into the public space designated as an overflow area of mass casualty events and several ambulances were diverted to another hospital. Even goes without talking about the ramping that goes on at these hospitals as well. What's ramping? So ramping is when an ambulance arrives with a patient on board but it's so full in ED and there's no staff available to even take that patient in for triage that they will not accept the patient into ED and the paramedics have to hold on to that patient in ambulance until they can be released inside wow. ED. So it would be a lonely have, feeling, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, and I know that um, that has been leading to some of the delays for people with call-outs. So then I know Waikato have been hit with this pretty intensively, and you could have eight ambulances ramped at ED waiting to offload patients who are in the ED saying, no, we can't take them. And then you've got more emergency call-outs and you've got no ambulances for call-out because they've still got patients on board. Again, you know, go through the Ministry of Health's expenditure and just say, okay, do we sell ramping or do we have this cultural safety department that's sucking 20 million bucks a year or whatever? You can hear the bureaucracy defending itself rather than figuring out how to solve the problem. Uh, Te Toka Tumai Auckland, which replaced the Auckland District Health Board last year, how much did that cost? How much did that rebrand cost? Uh, would not comment on specifics because of privacy considerations, but it said the staff member who was assaulted was not injured and had been offered support. It did not accept that there had been a breach of legislation. Thank goodness for the PR ladies. You could sheet this back to the closure of, of uh, mental hospitals in the early 90s. I remember I didn't get into the halls of residence when I first... Uh, Turned up at Waikato University uh, around 1991, or I think it was 91 or 90. My mother found me a, uh, a hostel which was nearby and quite cheap. And uh, so I was 17 and moved into this, and it turned out that it was where all the Tokunui patients had gone. Oh, you would have fit right in, doll. Oh, yeah, well, it certainly yeah, it was, it was entertaining. And it, it gave me a, uh, a lifelong interest in mental health issues. Well, it says at the end of this article, this week Viral announced 24 initiatives intended to relieve demand on hospitals this winter when demand is expected to surge again. Well, I think it's already there. I think it's, it's going to get worse than where it's at at the moment, especially if all of those people do not go out and get their COVID boosters and um, flu shots. She says with great cynicism, uh, frontline mm. staff at Auckland City Hospital say they need more psychiatric beds, more psychiatrists and mental health nurses and better physical facilities for mental health patients in ED, including a dedicated behavioural health assessment unit. It provides more suitable space for the distressed people to wait in. Now, I know of two psychiatrists that are not currently working in the system because of the you-know-what. I mean, I have sympathy for the patients that need the help. I have no sympathy whatsoever for ministers like Viral, who are saying, this is what we're going to do, and also too, for senior people in hospitals that are saying, this is what we need, this is what we need, but they yet will not let back staff who have been shut out of the system because of policy. And the longer it goes on, they are not going to get those staff back. Those staff are redeploying and they know they're not welcome. So they're not going to, to come back. I know they'll turn around and they'll say, oh, but it's only a very small percentage. Any percentage of the deficit that we have right now surely is going to make a positive difference, but it is not. Yeah, that, that, that would open a whole can of worms from that they don't want to open. But all of those issues, if you wanted to get real bang for your buck in health spending, you'd have a um, system where people could present for drug and alcohol treatment and be admitted straight away. Just the way, well, the, way the whole cycle of motivation works where you've got a point where you realize, hey, I'm wrecking my life. There should be staff going into police holding cells and saying, well, how are you feeling now? Do you want to go into treatment? And they should be able to say yes and go for a 12-week treatment plan. And if you take those, particularly now that um, methamphetamine's just tearing through communities, 
you know, you can treat them reasonably effectively just just by tranquilizing them a little bit and taking them away from temptation till they can get some insight. This is even without us going into the therapeutic amendments bill. I mean, if that absolute cluster, you know, gets passed, then the measures for those that do take care of themselves and preventative health are going to be legislated and made vastly more difficult. So all you're going to be doing is putting vastly more pressure downstream. It's, mm. it's biggest belief. It really does. I mean, the, belief. the black pill with all of this is making the move from thinking, you know, I used to often say when people would say, oh, God, these guys are just um, just dumb and doing a terrible job. You know, talking about Ardern's government, you haven't heard it so much uh, with Hipkins. My rejoinder was often, yeah, what if they're not as dumb as you think and they're doing a really good job? It's just you don't know what the job is or who they're working for. What have we got next? Well, we've covered uh, politics. We've covered health. It's now time to dive into education. Librarians, teachers fear bitter culture wars in New Zealand. Sunday Star Times. This piece is obviously designed to be pushed out as a supportive piece to the release of the Transgressive Transitions Disinformation Project report that came out on last week from our friends at the Disinformation Project. It is a report that the Disinformation Project has put out citing a raise in transphobic rhetoric and hate post the Posey Parker visit to Auckland at the end of March. So they have gone through and they are tracking this sort of language. And in this piece, it uh, those at the front line of teaching our nation's children are finding themselves at the forefront of conflict over ideas as parents target books and topics they don't like. Now, I've just spoken to Helen Houghton about this. Now, she's a former school teacher. She has left the teaching profession to go into politics with the new Conservative Party to actually fight stuff that's going on in schools. And what is really intriguing is that what has happened since COVID and what has happened, I believe, since a lot of parents have seen what was going on in their kids' schools because the kids were learning at home, is all of a sudden there has been a realisation of what teaching is happening that we are completely unaware of. It starts off with a story about our kids arguing and a teacher inter intervening. They were arguing over whether or not two um, people of the same sex could get married. And the teacher said, well, yes, in this country, that's law that they can. They said that I was forcing my views on the children. They don't want me to talk about or refer to gayness in any form and at any point. They wanted that disgusting flag on the wall to be taken down, Harriet said. It was a rainbow pride flag that had been on Harriet's classroom wall for years without complaint. So, I mean, I've looked at lots of feeds where the supposed hate lies, and I find it really, really difficult to find deep and damning. I, I had a look too. It was quite, I mean, you know, it was quite you interesting. Have... I wouldn't have known about these people. They, they really want to be famous is what I got from looking at their Facebook feeds. There's a yeah. lot of re reference to drugs. There was a bit of nudity. And it was really, they wanted they wanted to be famous. That was uh, the impression I, I got from it. I really struggled to see any um, anything but yes, go girl support. I mean, as you know, hyperbolic language is a real 
bugbear with me. And the report from the Disinformation Project has an entire segment about the trans genocide. Yeah. I still do not know where these bodies are piling up. Well, you know, the other thing is the, these are the same people who are saying uh, whiteness must be eliminated. So who's into genocide, really? Part of the reason I think that this piece has gone out is that there has been a pushback, and I talked about this with Helen. There has been a pushback around two aspects. One is Pride Week coming up in June. But also, too, uh, this coming Friday is uh, Pink Shirt Day in schools. Now, Pink Shirt Day used to be something fairly innocuous around the prevention of bullying in schools. And I discussed this with Helen. What it has now morphed into is that actually, really, it's about bullying specifically with the alphabet and rainbow communities, which actually is not the message we want to send to children. We want to send to children that bullying isn't okay, that sort of antisocial behaviour amongst your friends isn't on. The poster child for this is our little friend Chanel Lal. Mm. See, a week goes by without me not talking about Chanel. These are some of the texts, and I am going to have to slightly paraphrase them because they're not suitable for broadcast, that uh, tweets, I must say, that our friend Chanel has been known to pop out over the last little bit. I'm happy to be known as the fag that tore the fabric of society apart and destroyed the heterosexual dream. Thanks, Chanel. Uh, another one, if you and if your father, this Pakia man is an effing see you next Tuesday. Mm. Lovely. Go F yourself, you stupid a-hole. New Zealand is effed. And this is this is the person New that they have here. fronting the pink shirt campaign. Mm. Well, you know, again, you got to be careful that we're all on the same page with this. Don't forget that Marxist symbol of the up, upward-facing fist. You're going to that Kantian uh, thing of uh, don't do anything lest you... Uh, could, it could be a universal law, do unto others as you would have them do unto you kind of thing. But they believe that violence is okay if it's against someone who's higher up on the power pole. They, they believe the means justify the ends with that stuff. So it's completely consistent with that philosophy. What I see in this piece is parents are now starting to push back. They're not pushing back according to this article. Public and school libraries are not required to keep a record of the number or type of book challenges they receive, but Lahat said she hasn't yet noticed any significant increase. We're at the be prepared stage, she said. So this whole article, it's like a climate change article. Mm. It's based on a, uh, on a projection of what might happen. Yes, yes. And it's also a way to solidify the report into the wider sphere because of course you couldn't go by without kate hannah having a quote in here anti-transgender rhetoric has usurped covid19 as the new unifying issue for the kiwi disinformation community kiwi disinformation community now that report says that 1.8 million new zealanders have concerning uh, posting or language. If you're wondering what the size of this disinformation community is, it's 1.8 million Kiwis. Who well, don't that's a third of Kiwis. Their... That, that's, that's quite a sizable chunk. Yeah, who, who don't buy into Kate Hanna's 
formation of her identity using feminism, post-colonialism and Marxism. Well, she's a communist. She's an avowed communist. I mean, it's on the record she's a communist. Ah, yeah, that's that's the problem. They're serious about this stuff and New Zealanders need to get with the program. So she says here, everyone, every man and his dog is shifting from being motivated by anti-vaccine and anti-mandate issues to anti-trans issues, she said. Every man and his dog? Kate. It's not just hate, but actual physical disgust. If you other somebody, you dehumanize them. You make them like an insect or an animal, something you're repelled by. It makes it easier to deny their existence. It's terrifying. That, to me, unmasked everything. Well, have you had any experience of being othered? Well, I seem to remember the same people doing that to uh, anyone who disagreed with the old safe and effective. This is why I highlighted this, is that as far as I'm concerned, that 1.8 million people that could constitute the Kiwi disinformation community have been othered in one form or another for the last three years. The projection is strong with these ones. It's similar to Māori leaders talking about the racism of New Zealanders. If most New Zealanders think about what should happen to the country, it's uh, what should happen for everyone. They're not particularly fixated on race. If, if there's poverty, we should address it. If there's failure in education, we should address it. If someone's fixated on race, everyone looks racist to them because that's the way they think. Tabby Beasley, Managing Director of the Queer Youth Advocacy Group, Inside Out. Now, Inside Out have been subcontracted in one form or another to actually go in and do a lot of this intersectional education in schools. So it's not necessarily been done by teachers. A lot of teachers are actually really uncomfortable to do it. So they bring these groups in, and Pride Week is often when this happens. They're saying that teaching children inappropriate things, that we're going into classrooms and grooming children, really awful stuff. We're suggesting things like having a rainbow non-uniform day or doing some baking. It's up to schools what it looks like. Now, Helen presented evidence in the previous interview that, no, it, that may be, it may be like that in some schools, but in other schools it is literally having coming out celebrations at school assembly. And the thing that bothers me about Pride Week is that if you're a member of the rainbow community within a school, you shouldn't have to have a week to celebrate who you are, you should be able to celebrate your own self every single day. Be part of a wider school community where your sexuality is just part of who you are, as if you were to have brown eyes or black hair. You know, it, creating it into this separate label that you can then apply all these other, uh, would you like fries with that victimization and a press status labels onto it, is, which of course, as we know, fits into the neo-Marxist canon, that's not good for our kids. Especially when it's taken alongside being able to commence transitioning, which involves giving uh, puberty-blocking hormones, even arranging march towards double mastectomies and chemical castration, and the other law, which means that if anyone counsels a student who maybe isn't comfortable about feelings towards the opposite sex, that's now illegal with the anti-conversion laws. So yeah. you, you, no one who works in counselling is going to be comfortable stepping into that arena. And it's the Gillick principle, isn't it? You know, I didn't, I was completely unaware of this until the vaccination campaign started 
And they're now taking that exact same principle with gender identity and working kids through social transition and and the like. And it is dependent on whether or not that there are key people in that school. So if you are concerned as a parent, I think it means that you need to make sure that you're aware of what's going on. I think you need to make sure you've got your eyes wide open of what's happening. And I have to admit, that woke me up big time when I heard about that principle. I was like, wow, I had no idea. That, that was the case and I don't know about you Marty but even in my 50s I struggle to make really good positive decisions how on earth can they expect a 12 year old to make such life-altering decisions without at least counsel with their parents I, I don't want to be just talking about what's going on and fostering any sense of helplessness I mean, we do still have school boards maybe mm. it's time we got on school boards Maybe it's time we we went through and said, well, what's your pedagogical philosophy here? If it is to form equity by squashing down kids who are talented uh, for equity purposes, maybe it's time for us to say, hey, look, you know, that's uh, not what we want. You know, all children have all different talents and we want them celebrated and helped along. Mm, Exactly. Let's round things off with a bit of media, eh? Yes. There's two big puff pieces, one for Duncan Garner and one for his acolyte, uh, Paddy Gower. And it's sort of both of them, you get the feeling, you get the feeling that they've got the hangover. You know, they've they've been in um, high paid roles where they've had to maybe not be out and out willfully deceptive, but they've been driving the agenda on behalf of other people. And it's not necessarily good for ki- Kiwis. They've been leaving out some important factors, and now they're a little bit poor me. When Paddy Gower stopped boozing, as someone who's stopped boozing himself for a couple of years, I said, he's not going to be able to keep doing the news the way he is, calling it now. You know, he's out of there. Because in order to um, to do that, you've got to anesthetize part of yourself. His quote here, with this self-reflection and his emergence into broader frontline General reporting and documentaries, meeting real New Zealanders means, he says, that he's approaching the new role with maturity. Parliament is a ruthless place. I really have learned over the last few years that I'm not like that. And I function better when I'm more empathetic and caring, not just on TV, but just in general. I've been lucky that I've been able to bring my personality out and be more myself. We're going to see more refugees from this Mm. system because the revolution always eats its own. And of course, with the Duncan Garner, he's going to be doing his own podcast. Now, what I was intrigued with the Garner piece, having read that with this new podcast, is is Media Works going to allow Duncan Garner to truly say what he wants to say? I wouldn't mind checking it out if Duncan Garner is able to do a Leighton Smith right. and interview who he wants, explore avenues, even if they go against current political or um, ideological orthodoxies and actually just go for a wander down a path and just see where it takes you. I will be intrigued to see whether or not A, Garner has the balls to do it and B, whether or not MediaWorks allows that to happen. Now, to be fair, I didn't listen to him on Today FM, but I did watch when I was still watching Legacy Television. I did enjoy him on AM. He worked really, really hard at trying to sort of trod the centre to pathway. And you could see that there were times that he wanted to dive in and dig into something a little bit deeper, but the reins were on and he was being held back. By Overton's window. 
what are you allowed to talk about? And there's a problem that you have when you start looking beyond the media, that the more you know, the crazier you appear. And uh, that's what they're going to butt up against. And again, we've got this thing where we've been conditioned to think people are all the same, but we're not all the same. There's a fairly, as as we've alluded to before, there's a fairly stable uh, proportions of people who are able to resist authority and think for themselves, and they're far smaller than we'd like to think. Mm. And the people who aren't able to resist authority and want to stay in the herd are enough to vote in governments. As we discussed last week, there's a process in place to ensure that people who can think for themselves don't wind up in charge of political movements, but are compliant middle managers. So that, that's that's the problem that you got. It is. Well, speaking of thinking for yourself, Shane Curry, the Weekend Herald, staff proposes up to 16 job cuts. Staff is understood to be proposing to lay off half of a 32-strong team of production journalists. It's understood the company has proposed laying off 16 print producers, sub-editors in the old-school parlance, following the introduction of a new IT system called Naviga. Over the coming months, Stuff is updating and replacing parts of its technology stack, including new tools for our editorial and commercial teams. These will further enhance our ability to publish engaging local and national journalism and provide smart advertising for our commercial partners. Some changes to external processes will result to the modern new media technology. We're consulting with staff on the impact of this technology on roles and responsibility. I think AI has come to Stuff. Yeah. The sub-editing certainly gone downhill in all the major papers. You can you can spot errors if you've got an eye for it in a lot of the stories. Uh, so I'm sure AI could do it better because you know you look at those programs they they do a pretty good job. But that's okay because if we follow current trends, a lot of these people will wash out in the public sector. Mind you, those 16 staff journalists will their new 16 PR policy wonks, isn't it, for the government? Dare I say it? Speaking of Andrea Vance. Andrea got, she had a thorn up her butt. Yes. It is the most interesting piece because someone has obviously annoyed the living bejesus out of her. Like someone's really got up her nose. But she doesn't allude to who it is. It says here, spin by stealth, these media apologists are merely reliving their old battles. Yeah. I hope we have more of these moments like the, talking to you, not politicians moments. I mean, this is what we've been talking about, right? It's it, the paper's just a, a little uh, little closed rank of PR people and government and academics. She um, says here, leopards don't change their spots, especially when they're political stripes. Hiring them as commentators robs the national discourse of people who can give us fresh new perspectives and comes at things from a different angle. Oh, Andrea, the irony. If you're wanting to find things from a different angle, sweetheart, it's not in legacy media. Yeah. I mean, that wagon got unhitched from the carriage a long, long time ago. Yeah, I was looking at, they had a, uh, a list of what Duncan Garner had access to researchers and producers, etc., for his podcast. And I, I did a back of the cigarette packet um, calculation and, you know, if, if, say if, and, and yours will be twice as much as this, but you know, say if I'm paid a minimum wage for, for doing this in terms of the time it takes to read the paper and uh, buy the papers and et cetera, uh, not getting paid about $10,000 a year. But my commitment to 
I guess making my voice heard and bringing some of this stuff into the public discourse is such that I think uh, it's something I'm happy to do. It's interesting because you're still seeing these people who are vastly overpaid for what they're doing stigmatizing people like us as part of the disinformation, misinformation. Community. Um, yeah. I mean, we must be very motivated to deceive people if we're making those sort of sacrifices. The most important thing is that there are people like us that are prepared to make sacrifices because without making those sacrifices, nothing will ever change. A lot of these politicians, a lot of these media personalities and journalists and we've allowed them in some ways to get away with so much for so long. And it's just got to stop. I think the groundswell of voices now, I mean, I was heartened when I read that report, that mm. the groundswell of those, according to that report, is 1.8 million voices. That's a lot of voices. Mm. Imagine if that number of voices actually unified, even a proportion of them. I always talked about the zipper consensus. You know, we sort of often argue about our differences. I think it's important in the national discourse that we start at the bottom, right? We don't put out cigarettes on children. Okay, everyone okay with that? And just move up from there. And by the time we've worked out what we've got in common, our differences pretty easy to live with and accommodate in terms of who we hang out with, really. You have got something more at your end, I do believe. I don't know if you've been following this at all, but um, there was a king crowned in the UK. <gasps> Your oh, is that all the, yes, the, the, that was all the hullabaloo. Yes, the coronation. <laughs> Did you sit up and watch the coronation? Not at all. No, me neither. There's a lot of journalists banging the Republican drum and activists, and it's always based on that there shouldn't be that sort of concentration of wealth. My distaste is more centred around Jimmy Seville. All the occult kind of trappings that go with that stuff, you know, the whole coronation happening six months, six weeks and six days after the Queen's death, all that sort of stuff. I, you know, it's an interesting coincidence. Just knowing that it's, it, if you follow it up, and this is what going down the rabbit hole really is, it's finding out, well, the same people who print the money, own the media, drive the agendas that appear in it, sell us zero carbon idea without ever really revealing that the carbon they want to reduce is us. I don't I don't see a problem for there being an aristocracy necessarily, because if you've got a, a wealth allowed to concentrate in areas, then you can have art and architecture that's uh, better than you have if everyone's just living in, um, in ghettos and uh, shanty towns. I thought a lot of the resistance to it was misplaced. You had an opinion from a constitutional law expert who said, so why favour the Republic of New Zealand? First, nationhood. Our head of state should reflect who we are. We believe in egalitarianism and merit, not inherited wealth or titles. All Kiwis should be eligible to be head of state, not just people born into one English family. Hold on a second. Egalitarianism and merit. Did yeah. they say that with a straight face? Like, for realsies, not being sarcastic? Like the whole shift to become a whole new species doesn't happen when you've got uh, certain certain ancestry or whakapapa. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Alison Mao had a whine about it that, again, was very high fibre. I chewed and I chewed, but I, I couldn't get any, anything particular to pull out of that. Neil Oliver actually did his monologue immediately after the coronation, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I love his monologue each week. Yep. But he talked about the oath 
uh, taken at the coronation, which of course its foundation is based in common law, and actually unpicked that oath and the gravitas of the oath taken. And I think he was doing it in order to highlight that if King Charles were to sincerely follow that oath, very much along the lines that his mother did, then actually the value of a constitutional monarchy is really important because it actually, as monarch, you are actually completely answerable and a servant to the common people. So whether or not this happens, uh, because we do know he is rather fond of wee trips to Davos, will be yet to be seen. But I thought that was a really interesting take. Stephen Fry also said a few years back, I think in an interview with Jordan Peterson it was, and they were talking about Republic of, republicanism versus monarchy. Fry's point was that the thing with the monarchy, there's a bigger fish that sits over and above those elected officials that sit at Westminster or to another effect here in New Zealand. Yeah, there is always another layer there. And I have to admit, it saddens me that we've been unhitched from the Privy Council as, Mm. as a Commonwealth country. And it does concern me. If we become a republic, imagine if we'd had President Ardern. Yeah. I'm pleased you you brought up Neil Neil Oliver because that, that's something I was thinking because I've obviously consume a lot more than mainstream media and it's consistently far higher in quality. Yeah, Neil Oliver's points were extremely well made around sovereignty and that the, we've all got our own sovereignty and they've slipped in the sovereign government when it doesn't belong there according to natural law. And yeah, I mean, the middle management thing, Jimmy Seville, you know, they're all kind of linked and that, you know, Belgium was famous for this. And of course, they had their great Jimmy Seville was Marc Dutroux. And it's generally acknowledged in Belgium that if you get into a position of power, normally there's something reprehensible that's on record or that not, not on record that's available to your handlers, where if you start growing a conscience, which isn't something you want in uh, middle management, they can kind of say, ah, 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 remember what we talked about? Be a shame if this got out. The tendrils are all interlinked. You know, this focus on sexualizing children or exposing them to sexualized performances by transgender men. It's always men, it's never women. It's all linked with the fascination that a lot of these elites seem to have with pedophilia. Minor attractive person. I'm sorry, minor attractive. Minor attractive persons. Person. Oh dear. Next week, I'm sure that we're going to have more high fiber politics that we will digest. But again, thank you very, very much for joining me this week. This has been Media Matters with my co-host Martin Gibson. More music yet to come here on RCR and Counterculture. Thanks very much. Have a great week. It's time for the vocabulary word of the week. The vocabulary are words and phrases that have been hijacked by those who are steeped in the world of critical social justice. So what's hiding among the smoke and mirrors this week? Other and othering. The act of treating someone as though they're not part of a group and are different in some way. 
I selected this word because I read this quote in this weekend's Sunday Star Times from Kate Hanna of the Disinformation Project. It stated, It's not just hate, but actual physical disgust. If you other somebody, dehumanize them, you make them like an insect or an animal, something that you're repelled by. It makes it easy to deny their existence. It's terrifying. As she referenced the project's recent report, Transgressive Transitions, on the rise of transphobia in the wake of the Posey Parker visit. I know, I can hear your eye rolls from here. The irony for Hannah to state this in all seriousness, when for much of late 2021 and early 2022, hundreds and thousands of New Zealanders were othered by the government. Think rivers of filth, the media tossing labels like alt-right, neo-Nazi, anti-vaxxer or conspiracy theorist about like salad leaves. And even Hannah herself, who describes anyone who exercises their freedom provided under the New Zealand Bill of Rights in her recent report as disinformation communities. Othering is a way for those who have a penchant for self-imposed labelling to claim and amplify their victimhood. My solution is simple. Just walk and talk the other way. Thank you for joining me this week. I look forward to bringing you more great interviews and opinion next week. Keep the feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or you can now drop us a text using 2057 and leave your comment. That's 2057. Peter Williams is up next. You are with Counterculture. You've been listening to Counterculture. With Marie Busky. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.